working with those young people and trying to support them to navigate through a system that wasn't working for them and was making them feel consistently and repeatedly quite stupid and like they don't belong and like they don't really have a say and that their voice doesn't have value, that they can't produce their own knowledge, that essentially they're being marginalised from a system and always told that it's good for them. So to me, observing that happen over those probably about three years, I don't think it's too strong a word to say catastrophic, actually. Some of those young people stopped attending. Some of them went into crime. And some of this has obviously inspired me to continue thinking about criminality in the youth justice sector later on. Mm. But a lot of those experiences really jolted me. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello once again, my fathomless friends, my cosmic cousins of the spaceship Earth, and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's Critical Friend. My name is James Mannion, and you really are most welcome. If you can hear some noise in the background, my dog is just turned on his back in the sunlight by the window, if you can picture the scene. This week, it is my deep delight to be able to share with you a frankly astonishing conversation with Dr. Chris Bagley about three big ideas, kind of invisible shadow cultures, as Chris puts it, that have shaped the education system that we see today. Chris's scholarship and his knowledge of history are incredibly impressive. He speaks with immense knowledge and insight at length and without notes, and I really think you're going to enjoy this one. I'll say more about Chris in a few moments, but I'd firstly like to share some news with you, if I may, which I think will be of interest to anyone interested in making change happen. Are you interested in making change happen? Then this is for you. As regular listeners may be aware, there is an astonishing open secret that lies at the heart of our education system, really, that nobody ever talks about, and it is this. The vast majority of school improvement initiatives fail to actually improve anything. I'll say that again. The vast majority of school improvement initiatives fail to actually improve anything. This is an absolutely massive problem. In schools, change is like the weather. It often feels like the only constant is constant change. And yet the vast majority of these change initiatives fail to achieve their stated goals. As well as the obvious problem, the system is not improving in the way that it might, this constant churn creates untold problems in terms of teacher workload, burnout, mental health, teacher retention. It leads to a widespread condition that goes by many names, initiativitis, innovation fatigue or fad fatigue, or this too shall pass syndrome, a phrase muttered under many a teacher's breath as the latest wheeze is announced. But it doesn't have to be this way. In recent years, a new field of study has emerged, implementation science, the study of how to bring about lasting positive change in real world contexts. 
As regular listeners may be aware, I have become increasingly obsessed with implementation science in recent years. This is absolutely where we need to be focusing our efforts, our energy and our resources. Four years ago, I created an implementation science toolkit for schools called Making Change Stick. Well, that's what it's called now anyway. First of all, it had a bad name. I've now run this training with hundreds of schools all over the world. And honestly, the feedback and the impact has been absolutely astonishing. And there are a few things that I'd like to draw your attention to. First, I've created a free 10-part taster course to provide you with a sample of what's in this training program. It takes about an hour to complete and it won't be free indefinitely. So if you haven't done so already, I urge you to visit the website makingchangestick.co and dive in. There's a link in the show notes. Linked to this, I've just started publishing free weekly resources to share these powerful ideas with people. Again, there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up to receive these free resources. And again, these won't be free indefinitely, so get them while they're hot. Soon, I'm going to start a weekly webinar series where we'll explore these ideas in a more interactive way and think about how they apply to different contexts. So keep an eye out for that. And I'm also writing a book about this currently, which is called Making Change Stick, a practical guide to implementing school improvement. But as I say, these ideas are really of interest to anybody in any workplace or even thinking about how to make change happen in your own life. More news on the book soon, but for now, check out the links in the show notes and get your hands on the free stuff while you still can. And so to today's guest, Dr. Chris Bagley is a man with a dazzling variety of hats. He's a psychologist, a writer and a musician with an interest in youth justice, educational transformation and systems change. He is Director of Research at the amazing social enterprise States of Mind, which is co-run with Dr. B. Herbert, and he's also a lecturer and doctoral supervisor and erstwhile colleague of mine at the UCL Institute of Education. He also works part-time currently for the South Gloucestershire Psychology Service, primarily in a secure children's unit and in a pupil referral unit. Chris describes his purpose as being to co-develop psychologically healthy education systems. That would be nice, wouldn't it? If education systems were psychologically healthy, alongside young people, families, professionals, and creative thinkers. He started in education as a secondary school teacher, so he knows what he's talking about when he talks about the school system, and he later trained as an educational psychologist. Chris developed a specialism in relation to youth justice, school exclusions, and managed moves and practiced as a specialist in a youth offending team for a number of years, and you'll hear him talking about that work shortly. And he's also an accomplished folk musician who has some really lovely music on his website I've been listening to this morning. There are links in the show notes. Chris is also currently writing his first book, Shadow Cultures and the Tyranny of School and State, which is the topic of today's conversation. It explores the history of UK education and exposes some of the deeply entrenched, often invisible narratives that underpin and explain why we have the education system that we see today. This was, for me at least, an unbelievably interesting and important conversation that has been going around in my mind for weeks. I really think you're in for a treat. So, without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Dr. Chris 
Bagley. I hope you enjoy the show. Chris Bagley, we speak at last. Welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thanks, James. Lovely to be here and very much appreciate the invite. Well, yeah, I mean, it was you were shooing like from from when we very first came across each other. I I knew that you were somebody that I wanted to, uh, whose mind I wanted to probe, shall we say? Uh, there's you you are doing some really really interesting work, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation um, and getting going deep, <laughs> going deep into some historical territory um, in in as way of understanding the present. Um, and so we're going to get into all of that, but um, let's start with you. For anybody who isn't familiar with you or the work that you do, um, I sound like Stella Black here. Who are you and what do you do? Thank you very much. Well, at the moment, I've got a number of different roles. So the first one is fascinating, but very, very challenging. And that's working in the youth justice sector as a psychologist. So I'm an educational psychologist, formerly a teacher of five years. And I'm currently practicing predominantly in a prison, a secure children's home in Bristol, which obviously has young people from all around the country. And also people referral unit, which is quite a complex provision where there's a mental health section. There's a what would ordinarily be defined as a PRU section. So for young people who've been permanently excluded from school, generally speaking. And then there's a primary element and also a home tuition element, obviously with the young people that are resident or attending that provision there's a wide range of needs and challenges and vulnerabilities and historic traumas that mean that you have to do things differently and the mainstream school system does not work for those young people and fundamentally and in many cases has marginalized or excluded them from it and my second role is very different but also linked in with that in that I work at the Institute of Education University College London as a lecturer and doctorate research supervisor so I've been working with a lot of brilliant doctorate psychology students co-producing research often with a very specific angle which I'm sure we'll touch on today around reformulating what education might be conceived of and thinking about different purposes of education specifically from the angle of young people and those currently within the state education sector and that's led me into other work with a social enterprise called States of Mind, where I'm director of research. And some people listening might have heard of States of Mind. B. Herbert is the founder, and I work very closely with her. And we put together projects that try and figure out what are the social determinants of mental health and well-being for young people, and what can systems look like to better serve those needs and make sure that young people are existing and actioning and actually having an impact on their education world in a way that meets their mental health and well-being needs. So those are my three roles at the moment and I'm also trying to cobble a book together so it's a little bit too much going on really and my book's called Shadow Cultures and the Tyranny of School and State. It's probably about two-thirds through now I'm really excited to talk about it a bit today James because it gives me an opportunity to ramble on for longer than normal about it having presented different chapters and different hypotheses at various conferences so it'd be great to talk it through a bit more today and I think that probably summarizes what I'm doing at the moment and I guess it all started really from 
being a teacher and formerly before that I was, a, I was a cricket coach and yeah so there's there's a long history to get in here but I'm you know I've just hit 40 so there's been a lot of different random pathways that have opened up and closed along the way but I guess that's what I'm doing now if I was to summarize it there you go all right thank you so let's let's unpick it in reverse order like so because like, I'm interested first of all how did you go from being a teacher to doing what you're doing now that's a good question and when people have asked me that before there's one thing that really jumps out at me and that was being a secondary school teacher I started off as a PE teacher interestingly because in my youth I played a lot of cricket and at one point for a few years I wanted that to be my career I was on various cricket academies and playing cricket constantly very interested in sport it was something that really shaped my life shaped my values provided me with a foundation of confidence in myself and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, as many 21-year-olds do when they leave university, having mostly partied and not really thought much about the future. So I went into teaching, but primarily because my mum was a Senko for many, many years at a very deprived school in Netherton, which is near Dudley. So area of the world where there's a huge amount of issues, shall we say, and lots of families who are historically and are current, currently struggling. And... I was always pretty good at working with young people and done quite a bit of coaching through those years at university, doing a sport degree as well. It was all sport guided, as you can probably glean from what I'm saying. So I thought, well, let's have a crack at teaching. And I was a PE teacher for a couple of years and I found it a little bit unstimulating in many ways at that point. I think I was starting to want to think a bit more abstractedly and take a more cerebral route. So I thought, well, what could that look like? And Alongside that, there was also me noticing some really problematic narratives in the school system, and particularly the fact that I noticed that setting and streaming and having top, middle and bottom sets were causing quite a lot of distress for the young people that I was working with. And I even noticed that in PE lessons, to be honest. And I thought I'd divert my career and do something a bit more cerebral, a bit more academic. And having gone to Durham University, there are a lot of very academic, nerdy folk there. And I wasn't really in that crowd at the time. I was very much in the sport crowd. But then there was definitely a shift in my early 20s. And what I did to try and get lots of experience, James, because obviously to be an educational psychologist, you need to have varied experience in different types of provision. So I worked in various different secondary schools as a supply teacher for a few years. And I got some really fascinating experience there. So I worked in a school for kids with profound and multiple learning difficulties, which was actually my favourite teaching job, looking back. One school for kids with severe autism, various different secondary schools. And at that point, I was teaching mostly English and science because those were where the gaps were in terms of people needing to fill in for other teachers. And at that point, when I started teaching English in particular as a supply teacher and honing my skills there, I really did pick up the catastrophic at times impact of the exam system on some young people and I think because of the nature of how I present myself and how I interact with young people I tended to be given on my timetable inverted commas bottom set children so that started to shape my thinking about the school system and I started to recognize that there's something fundamentally amiss here and that's really galvanized my practice as a psychologist since becoming one so I think there's a few strands there James but um 
And it's quite a complicated model trajectory because it's a human trajectory. Yeah, okay. It's interesting because lots of people who are in academia who used to be teachers sort of say, oh, I just like drifted into it. I saw it sort of happened by accident. I somebody like, you know, did a master's and something, you know, met someone and, and they really influenced me. But it seems like it was quite intentional on your part. You're like, I need to do something more cerebral. I'm gonna move into this, into this space. I think that's a, a good point. Yeah, and that's that's I think I how I experienced it at the time. I think I was relatively academic at school and obviously went to Durham University, which is quite an academic university. And that sort of went by the wayside for quite a long time because my focus was very much around becoming very good at sport. And I had a lot of social priorities at that point as well, being a late teenager, you know, mid to late adolescent guy. So, yeah, I think it probably was quite intentional. And there was a sort of realisation that I found education very interesting but I didn't feel that where I was going to get the most out of being in that system and contributing to it was in teaching I thought I wanted to think more systemically and very specifically to think about the really complex problems that are underneath it Mm, yeah thank you and so so you were taught you let's just pick up on a couple of those problems you mentioned setting and streaming first of all Mm -hmm. um and also you, you used the word catastrophic I think the catastrophic impact of the examination system on the young people that you were working with um whichever one you want to take first can you tell me like what we what was your initial experience as a teacher that made you feel concerned about those things i think it was when i was teaching in birmingham and in various different schools deliberately and intentionally like you said to try and get a wide range of experience in different types of provision and noticing some very complicated and distressed behaviours from particularly young, poor boys and girls. But, you know, the statistics are pretty clear, aren't they? That if you're in a bottom set, again, inverted commas, hate that phrase. But if you're at that bottom of the social hierarchy, you tend to be in a poor um, young person from a very specific type of background with already unsafe neighbourhoods and often other things going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. And working with those young people and trying to support them to navigate through a system that wasn't working for them and was making them feel consistently and repeatedly quite stupid and like they don't belong and like they don't really have a say and that their voice doesn't have value, that they can't produce their own knowledge, that essentially they're being marginalised from a system and always told that it's good for them. So to me, observing that happen over those probably about three years, I don't think it's too strong a word to say catastrophic, actually. Some of those young people stopped attending. Some of them went into crime. And some of this has obviously inspired me to continue thinking about criminality in the youth justice sector later on. Mm. But a lot of those experiences really jolted me. And it made me think, well, something needs to be done about this. And I wasn't thinking that just in terms of I'm going to do something about this. It was what are other people doing about this? How can I make a contribution to that? And I guess that's the catastrophic bit that uh, I mentioned earlier. And obviously I'm seeing more and more of that these days, being in a position where I'm working almost only with those kind of young people in the prison sector and in the pupil referral unit context. Mm. And what was the other one, James? You said there was another strand. Uh, Setting and streaming. Right. So I wasn't very aware of the social hierarchy that was created by the school system then. I was almost experiencing it quite viscerally that makes sense so I hadn't thought about it in a more academic sense and I hadn't done any reading really around setting and streaming because on teacher training you're just told to accept it it's conditioned into you that that's how it works 
It's very much pushed by Ofsted. If you look at the way they report on schools, it's present throughout state education since the Second World War, which I now know about through looking into this. And I think that'll probably come up very strongly when we talk about the order of three, because the idea that young people can be divisible into three essential um, stations in a hierarchy is an extremely ancient ideal that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And it's constantly being reappraised, repackaged and reformulated right in front of our faces. But we're told essentially to ignore it, even though we can see, and any teacher who's worked in that context, who allows themselves to see it and lets yeah. themselves feel that visceral response from the young people can see it happening, you know? Yeah, so that's, right. that's probably was a one of the biggest pushes, James, into getting me into psychology because I, I wanted to recognise why does the system look and feel like this? Do other people notice this as well? Because it's not talked about in schools very much. So there's loads of other stuff, isn't there, there? And it's very complex. And I found that quite invigorating, the complexity, and wanted to try and learn more. Yeah, it, it sure is complex. Like, I, I similarly, if I, if I may just share something from my own like, early experience as, as a teacher, I was similarly found it jarring work, um, working with top and bottom set classes in different in different year groups. And when I started doing a master's um, and at the first sort of research project that I did, I did a lit, a lit review about self-esteem because, first of all, like everyone talks about self-esteem a lot, don't they, in schools? And they often use it as a way to sort of say like, Oh yeah, that kid. That kid, you know, isn't you know behaving very well, or is behaving in a challenging way, and that's because they've got low self-esteem. So we need to somehow sort of find what what will big them up. Like you were saying that you got your sense of confidence. A lot of it came through playing cricket, through sport, through you know finding that you're good at something. If we can make them feel good about themselves, then all will be well. And so I started researching self-esteem, and it's and it's a really interesting concept. It's very counterintuitive and slippery, and it's not. What like the the common understanding of self esteem is quite a long way removed from the sort of from what is understood in the psychological literature. But I was interested because I was looking at I, in this one particular year, I was te teaching top and bottom sets in both year eight and year eleven, and I just had noticed for after a few months of doing this that like the, the, essentially I didn't notice that there was any difference in between the top and bottom sets in year eight in terms of their enthusiasm right they were really into it still they were asking questions they were bringing in I remember kids bringing in you know and they like, rip out a little like newspaper article about space that they found at the weekend and they bring it in they're like oh look at this they found a new planet or something and you know just like just like bubbling over and still getting really into experiments and so on very very difficult class to teach lots of lots of high levels of different needs and so on but loved teaching them and at the same time I was teaching a top and bottom set year 11 class and the the year 11 class my goodness what was it like it was like I mean they just so did not want to be there you know I remember I remember this <laughs> this one time I made this massive papier-mâché um, model of the solar system and a huge one of the sun. I spent weeks papier-mâché in this thing, and this this kid this kid came in and he was blowing off <laughs> blowing off steam. There's something bad had happened in the in the um, in the playground, and he'd been in some sort of conflicting situation. And he just went and headbutted the sun, <laughs> put this massive hole in the side of the sun. And I was like, oh man, like, oh my goodness, this big kid. And he sat down and he, he was almost like, you know, like a, like a, 
an archetype of like a bull sort of like steam just blasting out of his nose and he was just like red in the face and he was just furious and and I remember sort of saying to you, hey, man, do you want to, you know, come in, sit down? Do you want a pen? And he just went, no. <laughs> it's like, right. Ooh, we've got a double lesson here. You know, but and that was, you know, an unusual example. But the typical, the typical behavior that I would notice in that class was just like avoidance, avoiding doing work, avoiding any eye contact. Like if you went and sat at the table to sort of say, hi guys, how's it, how are you getting on? You know, do you need any help? And they would just be looking down and they would just, it was almost like a shame response or something. They just like, they just did not want to be having a conversation about this subject. And science is a compulsory subject. They don't get any choice over it. And and quite a lot of the science curriculum is pretty arbitrary stuff about, you know, like magnesium reacting with whatever, or, you know, how a nuclear power station works. And it's like not particularly relevant to the life of a 15 year old kid. And they were just like waiting for me to go away from their table so they could just relax again. And it was just like, they looked like they were, they were afraid, you know, just like ashamed of not being good at this. And by that point, of course, they've been, tested every year of their lives at six times a year like you know sort of summative assessments every half term and every time they do that they get told that they're bad at science bad at science bad at science but they've still got to do it as you say they don't get any choice over this and and what i found was so so i measured sorry this is a bit of a long interjection but it's interesting so so i measured like global self-esteem like there's this sort of global self-esteem measure, the Rosenberg scale. And then there's then there's self-efficacy for science, which according to my understanding at the time, at least, is, is essentially like your self-esteem as it relates to your ability to do science. And what I found was that there was no, no difference um, between the kids in terms of self-efficacy for science um, in year eight. But 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 in terms, uh, 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 I beg your pardon, or in terms of cell global self esteem. But by year eleven, their global self esteem and their self efficacy for science had both nosedived hugely. And it's not that the top set kids had increased; the top set kids just sort of stayed the same level as the top and bottom sets kids were in year eight. But by the time they get to year eleven, their their self efficacy for science and their global sense of self esteem. And if you look at the if you look at the statements on that questionnaire, it's things like, you know, sometimes I feel like life is not worth living, you know, or sometimes I just feel like nobody understands me. And they're really sad things that these kids were strongly agreeing with. Um, and I was like, my goodness, the, the, you know, what is the difference between three years, between year eight and year 11, between these two groups of kids? You know, m- maybe there's complex stuff going on here. Like you say, there's all kinds of different, like, layers of complexity in that go into a young person and their development but my goodness i think that the the setting and self-esteem stuff is is really insidious um and just so so it goes against what we understand about about human psychological cognitive emotional development you know we don't we're not developing bands in in that sense it's a really false distinction and it's just it seems like designed just to limit the ability of certain kids to achieve or to be exposed to certain ideas. So it's a very long-winded way of saying I totally agree with you. I, I similarly had very, very deep concerns um, about that. Absolutely. and I mean, that really resonates with my experience as a teacher as well. And I think what I've been trying to figure out is why is this happening? Because I don't think teachers, or very, very, very few teachers, are trying to act in a way that's harmful for children, are they? 
So right. I guess one of the journeys I've been on recently is trying to understand why in England does education look and feel like this? Why is it so socially stratified, consciously and intentionally, using things like setting and streaming? Where does that come from? And why do we not see this in some nations of the world? And what's going on there that's underpinning some of those really pernicious narratives that continue to create what you might call uh, distance between young people, both in terms of what they're learning, how they're learning, and how they feel about what they're learning, as you said, which has a huge impact on their self-efficacy, doesn't it? And global self-esteem then suffers. So, yeah, that's one of the projects I've been working on, which we might talk about in a bit. Um, but, you know, and it's also, of course, probably a bit too too much and outside the scope of this talk as well, or maybe it isn't. But, you know, the grammar school system that we still have in many parts of England is uh, another symptom of that thinking, isn't it? Which... Absolutely. Well, you were talking about the order of three before. I mean, they, they literally called it the tripartite system, didn't they? Like, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we're going to get to that shadow cultures and the tyranny of school and state. But I just want to peel back a couple more layers, if I may, in terms of your educational journey. So you talked about how you went from from teaching to um, to doing the, the amazing uh, work that you're doing now. And that you also mentioned that you sort of that you didn't really know what to do out of uni. And so you just thought, oh, I'll just do teaching. But what did you do at uni? Was it a sports-related thing? It was, yeah, it was. It was a, basically a sport degree. So I did a lot of studying around sports psychology, interestingly. I got into that probably then. And a lot of thinking around how young people learn to become skilled in sport, things like kinesiology, which is essentially the biological uh, factors that are implicated in young people developing different body types and it was a whole range of stuff from biology to, to, to you know sports psychology a little bit of philosophy as well so it was essentially a social science degree with a very strong sport element and in a way it was it was quite a lovely thing to be part of because most people who are on that course were very high level performers in sport so there were a few professional cricketers in there and and there was a extremely good golfer playing off scratch. So for golfers, obviously, that means they're very good for those <laughs> spots, uh, in the golf. Some brilliant swimmers, you know. So we're surrounded by what you might describe probably as elite athletes. So you know that was and quite inspiring. Did you say you were at Durham? Well, that's Durham, yeah. So at Durham, there was a cricket academy there. It was called a Durham University Centre of Centre of Excellence, and there's four of those or five of those, I think, in England. I dropped off that very quickly because I realised that. I actually didn't like cricket as much as I used to, and I wanted to do other things. And right, and, and would you say that there were predominantly um, private, privately educated kids who were at Durham? Is that fair to say? I think it was a mix, but uh, there are a lot of private school educated children. Yes, as you would find with other red brick university and and Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah, so I'd already been somewhat exposed to quite a few young people from public schools because I was playing cricket. But you know, my family are. Um, my parents are very working class. You know, my mum became a teacher. My dad uh, worked in a factory as a mechanical engineer. Both smart people, but um, their background was, you know, they love fry ups, fish and chips, and going for a pint. You know, that's that was my upbringing. So it's very much a sort of West Midlands, black country upbringing from my parents. But I'd already met, you know, a number of young people from from public school. But I mean, that's an interesting one in itself, James, because when I would go to hockey trials, for example, where I wasn't as good 
And you get this very odd thing that Diane Rie talks about in her book, Miseducation and Elsewhere, where you walk into a room or you walk onto a astroturf in hockey terms, or even in a, into a room when you go in your Durham University. And many of the privately school educated young people immediately have a very, what seemed to me, enormous state of self-confidence and self-assuredness, which I didn't have. And they all know someone who knows someone. So within minutes, they're friends, they're bonded, they're connected, they have a shared language, they have a shared way of being, they have a lot of shared connections. Whereas if you're a state school educated young person like I was, I felt a bit lost in, in that context. And I remember going to hockey trials and vividly, there was a couple of lads stood next to me and one went, what school did you go to? And I said, King Charles, Kidderminster which of course they had no idea what that was. So he ignored me and then he went to the next gentleman who was also 18 at hockey trials. What school did you go to? And he said Charterhouse. And he went, my mate William went to Charterhouse. And that was it, they're friends. Yeah. So that's another interesting thing, isn't it? In terms of considering power and considering social hierarchy and considering how one positions himself and how you feel when you walk into different contexts and how much immediate authority you feel that you have when you're in situations like that. So that was an interesting learning process that I, to be honest with you, hadn't thought about until very recently. Mm. Like being a state school student, going to a very private school heavy, you know, university. So again, interesting stuff. And it does, it has shaped me to some extent later on and even now. Yeah, right. You mentioned that Diane, I'm never sure how to pronounce her name. Is it Ray, R-E-A-Y? Is it Ray? I always say Ray, but that's just me reading it. <laughs> it might be Ray. Anyway, Diane Ray's book, um, Miseducation, if anyone listening to this hasn't read that, it's absolutely brilliant. And we were also talking earlier off air about uh, Neil Mercer, my former PhD supervisor, and he's done some research on this, like talking to, to students at Cambridge uh, from from upper class backgrounds and from working class backgrounds and um and asking them about their experiences of the transition to uni and you know there's one of them that one of the kids who is from yeah the equivalent of wherever it was Eton or rugby or something said like I only put Cambridge like this is literally the only university that I put on my UCAS form it was just like everybody that I knew had been there my brother's here like I know the admissions tutor it was just it was just like such a smooth transition there was just like never anything else was expected of that of that kid um and then you know like kids from working class backgrounds who like you say you were talking about feeling like they're excluded who sort of like you know, like sneered at or sort of people like laughing at them because they use the word toilet rather than restroom or whatever the whatever the genteel term for bathroom is or whatever you know I and remember then- to my shame coming back from durham and challenging my parents to say tea rather than dinner and I'd sort of been sucked into these narratives about right speech and the appropriate way to talk and the sort of monomyth of English culture about this is how you speak. And I started being quite rude to them about why don't you call it dinner? And I look back at that now with shame and I realise mm. that that is what is very subtle about English society and uh, the class system that is now since John Major, who tried to pretend there wasn't one and tried to put that to the side. Uh, There's a sort of sense in England that we need to stop talking about this. But then when you 
think about your own experiences, you realise that you've succumbed or have been marinated in that narrative to the extent that you then start to look down upon your own family who are very nice people and brought you up very beautifully and supported you all the way, which was really intriguing looking back. And mm. I spoke to my parents about it and they don't remember, interestingly, but uh, I remember. And it, I can. that's what happens, I think, isn't it? You, you have to sort of absorb yourself into the dominant culture. And if you're in a certain element of English society and you want to thrive and you want to become connected and you want to be perceived as someone who has authority, you have to talk and be a certain way. Yeah, right. And that is the game that we're playing, isn't it? That's, so So we're tipping here into the second of your big ideas, the tower of right knowledge, that there's, there's a right way of thinking about things. I recently uh, listened to a really good book um, by a previous podcast guest called John Higgs, and it's a book about Beatles uh, and James Bond simultaneously. They were both born on the same day. The Doctor No and Love Me Do both came out on the same day in 1962. And it's a really interesting book because he talks about it as almost like the atom splitting into matter and antimatter. One is Eros, right, all about love. One is Thanatos, all about death. And it's these two sort of like primeval drives. And it's almost like this the, the culture was sort of trying to understand itself in this post-empire age anyway so class masculinity loads of really interesting ideas come out of this this book but one of the things he was talking about rp received pronunciation and it's nobody speaks like that like it's not even a thing that people from the from the home counties speak like say it's just an invented way of speaking that it's like and he talks about you know james bond's england that's not the that's not the same country as like the, the Beatles, Britain. You know, it's like they're very very different things. Um, but it's just sort of invented. It's like this artificial um, is carapace. The right word. I don't know. I'm going to use the word carapace, but I'm, it might be wrong. This sort of facade, this weird structure that we sort of pre, like we people buy into and they hold it up. We call it dinner. We don't call it tea. You know, this is how we do things around here. We have tea at three o'clock in the afternoon with some cucumber sandwiches with a crust cut off. Nobody would do that if they were in their house at, at home, but it's still all this like this this weird like a spectacle, society of the spectacle, right? This this like just a a game that everybody's you know, that, that some people play right and that other people feel excluded from and that's given great currency fascinating ian cushing i don't know if you've heard of him he's just written a brilliant book on that and talking about really love lovely phrase he uses is, for example the white ears of ofsted so how ofsted police language and have very specific assertions around what is appropriate language and right speech and teachers are then conditioned to promote this and obviously many teachers feel very jarred by that and they they don't feel that's appropriate, particularly if they have people with accents who might be working class young people or racialized groups of young people. And it's just fascinating to me how it permeates all our institutions and is yet almost never discussed or even actively denied. And the idea that that doesn't confer immediate and effortless superiority on some groups rather than others is absurd. Of course it does. And you know, looking back, it's fascinating that I've only re recently realised that I had to change how I spoke and who I was to fit into one particular social context. I don't think I do that anymore, but you're not always aware, and that's the complicated thing about it. So very complicated stuff, very interesting stuff. Um, yeah, right. Really tangent, James. I enjoyed that. 
My pleasure. I really recommend that that Bond and the Beatles book is really interesting. It's like more interesting than it deserves to be in some sense. Like it's, I love that that John Higgs is such a brilliant author. Anyway, so um, we've got two more questions before we take this deep dive into history. One is like, what was your own experience of school? Like you talked about the fact that you you know you were from this working class background. I'm assuming you went to like local comp. You're young enough to have not done the 11 plus, so it was comprehensive system by then. Um, what was your experience of, of school yeah. like? Well, I think it's the class thing is a difficult one because my parents definitely grew up very working class. You know, my dad shared a bed with his brother until he got married and, you know, they're quite poor. I didn't grow up in a poor family and my mum was a teacher and she was a Senko by then. So in many ways, it's that funny thing in England, isn't it? Where, where did you sit? So culturally, I think my parents were working class. And the activities we took part in, other than cricket, which is not working class at all, <laughs> interestingly, were quite working class, you know, pubs, pints, bags of scratchings, fry-ups, that sort of thing, and, you know, faggots, chips and peas, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, to a certain extent, I was playing cricket. You know, my parents had enough money that we could do nice things. So, I, you know, it's complicated, that, isn't it? And I don't really know where I sit on there, in there. And I don't think that matters. It's OK to not know exactly, isn't it? Mm. And my school was, yeah, just a, a regular comprehensive school in Kidderminster, which is in the West Midlands near Worcester. And, you know, I was relatively academically able. So, you know, in top sets generally, for example. So I didn't experience any of the things I experienced when I was a teacher and obviously had friends that did. One of my friends was permanently excluded. I remember that at the time vividly and also thinking how unfair that was. I do, do remember that he was being physically assaulted by a parent at the time quite regularly and we knew that and I remember him being kicked out and thinking well that feels very wrong but I didn't really know what was wrong when you're 14 it's hard to understand why you feel the anger that you do because you're told that schooling is a good thing and that you need to rely on the adults you can trust the adults but it did stoke a lot of mistrust with my friendship group particularly this young person who's now doing okay actually but for a few years that he was on the borderline of not doing very well at all and I remember the lessons to be really honest I was quite bored most of the time and it was very much around doing what I thought I needed to do to pass and not necessarily engaging very strongly with many of the lessons other than English I really loved English and I had some good English teachers in up until A level and I do remember getting really into creative writing and I've in later life I was became a musician wrote a lot of music and recorded songs and things and I think that was a good bedrock for that because it stimulated some of my interest in reading writing and learning using those particular approaches but I didn't find school particularly interesting but I also really enjoyed the social side of it as most teenagers do so it was a very non-traumatic almost cruise control experience really which I think it probably is for a lot of young people who are, who are academic enough to to manage it fine mm. and I look back on it though and think there's so many things that we could have done or I could have done that could have been really invigorating and inspiring and could have really supported me to think about the world in different ways but I guess it's interesting that now I'm doing things that are extremely cerebral and academic but I didn't really think that was my thing at school and that's probably because the things I was doing didn't really pique my interest so I associated academic learning with being bored. Whereas now I associate academic learning with being incredibly excited all the time and sometimes puppy dog-like, running around my house picking up books. That's a bit of a ridiculous image. Sorry to the listeners for that. But um, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's intriguing looking back. 
that now I find it incredibly exciting to read, write and learn in that way. And you know, it wasn't really something that excited me going to school. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm sure that that's a partly a, a side effect of the way that education is done to kids. You know, there's like this ongoing debate about the, the, the role of agency in schools and people say well you know what the problem with that is that when you give kids choices they make bad choices they choose to goof around and to and to read unchallenging texts and you know this is better for them you know if we if we if we control it it's better for them and you can sort of understand that side of the argument but I think it's really problematic that that if you if you outsource the the role of like you, like you used a really interesting phrase before. You said something like the, the kids aren't allowed to create their own knowledge, right? They're not allowed to, to, to there's no scope for meaning making in the curriculum in terms of, you know, like looking at their lives and where they fit into it all. It's just like done to them. It's outsourced. And there's something about that, that your part of your brain just sort of switches off and you just sort of, it is quite a, a dulling, numbing way of, of of learning stuff you know um it, it's not if, if you've chosen it if you've chosen to be in that in that environment and you're like okay i'm going to be talked at about you know whatever i'm going to attend these this series of lectures because i really want to know about this that's different but you know there's not there's not even any choice about whether that whether they're in there in the first place right right and i think that's again i wanted to figure out why does it look like that because i don't think it's because teachers have chosen it and some teachers may choose it. And like you say, some people like learning like that. But I certainly didn't. And that's probably why the main snippet of interest and excitement I had was when I did have agency and I was doing English and I was able to express myself in my own way, in my own words. Mm. I vividly remember that. And I vividly remember being very bored in most of my other lessons. So that's maybe something we can touch on with one in one of the themes, because there are very clear historical reasons why we have the sage on the stage as a sort of teaching approach. And we're moving back towards that, aren't we, with an enormous focus on direct instruction. Direct instruction. Yeah. And anyone who's even moderately deemed to be progressive, even if they're not, is shunned quite aggressively by the powers that be. Um, so mm. the, I think there's, yeah, and these are the kind of questions I was asking, James, the last few years, because you were a teacher. I still think I am a teacher. I still work with groups of young people in secondary schools, which we might touch on later I don't teach specifically but I'm still working with groups of young people because I love it and I, I just think there are very complex reasons why it feels and looks like this that are not always conscious and I think that's I think that's essentially what I'm trying to do with this book really is to try and make some of the things that are unconscious conscious yeah yeah absolutely right I've got one more question and then we'll get into the historical stuff um and that's the significant learning one right the, the question about you know moments of learning that have really shaped you we've probably heard a few of them already as you've been speak, speaking about your life so far but I'm just interested if, in, to hear if anything particular sort of stands out in terms of things that have shaped you as a person and it could be stuff that happened in formal educational settings or it could be a person that you met or a book that you found on a bus or a conversation that you overheard. Um, does anything stand out as something that has that has been a, a pivotal moment or two or three? You could you could pick yeah. up if you like. Well, I can, there's three that jumped into my mind there. The first one was when I finished university, I wanted to just be free because I felt like I'd been learning in a very specific way for a long time, which essentially involved lecturers and formerly teachers telling me to write notes and then me reflecting on what they'd said 
and having to tick a very specific checklist in terms of my answers. And I was really bored of that. So I went and did a snowboarding season. This sounds like a slightly random segue, but it, I'll explain why it was really intrigued me. And I'd been taught, as all young people are taught in England and in many other places, of course, that the only way to learn something is for an adult to tell you what to think. And the idea of an autodictat, which is someone who learns themselves or teaches themselves something using methods that don't require direct instruction, is anathema to a lot of the realities in English schooling. And it's very aggressively policed, that narrative, isn't it? On social mm. And I wasn't on social media then. It didn't exist, of course, when I was 21. I'm now 40. But I remember going to Canada on a total whim, and I'm a pretty spontaneous kind of person. So one of my mates was like, I'm going to Canada. I'm going to go snowboarding. Fancy it. So I saved a bit of money and I just went off to Whistler in Canada to do a snowboarding season. And what then happened was I realized that I could snowboard. So I had to figure out how am I going to learn to snowboard? I didn't have any money. So I taught myself to snowboard. And I did it by buying a board, watching people, crashing a lot, tweaking my technique. And after four or five months, I was pretty good. You know, I could do a 360. I could do 180s. I could go really fast. I could ski. I could snowboard on mobile fields. I was doing powder snowboarding. We were hiking up, jumping off cliffs. And I remember thinking at the time, no one's taught me that. I've taught myself that in a social context, supported by friends, mostly pointing and laughing, as 21-year-old males tend to do after they've had a bit of a drink and possibly some other interesting substances along the way. Um, so I learned that you can teach yourself stuff. And then a few years after that. I think this opened my eyes really to what creativity can be in different ways of learning. I got a guitar from an ex-girlfriend of mine. And I really thank her for that even today. And again, taught myself to play guitar by listening, watching YouTube videos and got to the point where, you know, I was in a band for four years. We recorded some tracks, you know, I'm not saying we're amazing and I'm not saying I'm amazing at snowboarding either, but the reason those two experiences are really important because they taught me that there are different ways of becoming good at things and really enjoying things and becoming invigorated in learning. And that really continues to inspire me. So what I also realized there's nothing special about me. Like anyone could teach themselves to do anything actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then I read a book, which you may have heard of, by a French philosopher called Jacques Rancière, called The Ignorant Schoolmaster. Oh, I've not come across that one. Which is a really interesting read. And it got me thinking about the fact that what we rely on, rely on in, a, in a state school sector that is governed by very rigid curricula, which is in turn governed by set accountability measures and the exam system, is the sage on the stage, master and learner, learner as a vessel, um, and young people positioned as people who don't know anything and can't produce knowledge. And what that book does, and other writing since, is it helps you to realise that actually it is entirely possible and arguably preferable, and I, in my personal case it's been preferable, to learn in a way that suits my own propensities and my own proclivities and my own interests which obviously is very meaningful now with me being a psychologist. But I think in my early 20s, though, what shifted was me starting to recognise that if you let young people and people generally think and act in a way that is meaningful to them and they have agency, 
they will learn things very successfully and they'll not just learn them successfully, they'll become intrinsically motivated by them and then they'll probably keep, keep them going throughout their life. Jack Rancière sort of put some of the philosophical bones on the skeleton there. And now we're seeing a lot of stuff coming out from the unschooling and learning community movements, people like Gina Riley and Alan Thomas, who are reporting very clearly, aligning with what Rancière says, that people are learning to read without direct instruction as well. People are learning skills that we are told are impossible without direct instruction. And there's some brilliant studies in psychology around, for example, young people who are street kids in Brazil who are absolutely phenomenally brilliant at maths because they're having to think on their feet whilst working on the streets of Brazil and they're doing incredibly complex sums, figuring out means, percentages, um, projecting into the future, coming up with forecasts about what they need on the spot. It's like taking mental arithmetic to the level of bonkersness. So there's so many examples. And I think my own life triggered me to look into it more, but also now I've looked into it more. I realize this is extremely challenging to people, isn't it? The idea that you don't need to be taught directly to do things like reading or yeah. things like maths. We're so conditioned to think that those things are essential and you're letting children down. And in fact, you're harming them by not. That it's been met when I've written articles and posted things before about this with quite a lot of aggression and anger by people who've not looked at the evidence and won't look at the evidence which says, which I guess demonstrates how jolting it is to pull back the veil a little bit and realise that what we think we're certain of might not be as certain as we think and that there are other ways of thinking, doing and being in terms of education. Mm. It's a bit long-winded, James, but it's, I guess there's three things there that are, I guess triggered yeah. me to this a bit more. Thank you. So to pick out the three, so there was snowboarding, the, yeah. the, the Rancière book. Yes. And oh, also self-taught on guitar. Yeah. Oh right, yeah, autodidacticism. Yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, about guitar. Yeah, I mean, it really made me realise a lot. I learned so much about learning, about metacognition, which is learning to learn, which you're an expert in, of course, um, from doing that. And mm -hmm. the fact that that's going to be different for every person. And I mean, it's a it's a totally different way of looking, isn't it? I, I sort of think that the aim of of formal schooling if there if there needs to be um formal schooling is that it should be to get every person to the point that they are autodidactic and if and if that's you at 11 cool off you go do your thing you know and we we can still provide a space we can still you know child protection klaxon going off we can still like look after people's kids while they go to school but we don't have to get them to sit in the second row and to turn to page 11 they can figure out for themselves which page of which book they want to turn to right there's a there's a whole world out there and once you can learn how to read and write you know you're you're a large part of the way there um but yeah it's it is to my mind it's like it always gets reduced to this binary debate should we should we have self-directed learning or shouldn't we and mm -hmm. to my mind it's like and that's the way that the debate is policed it's like no you're trying to get rid of what we believe in and actually we're just talking about a blend here right we did like in the learning to learn curriculum that i did you know it was 20 percent of curriculum time one one in one one in five parts of the education that the kids were getting was to a large extent, self-directed, not completely, but, you know, they had lots more agency and autonomy to do their own thing within that space. 
Um, there's another strong case for saying that we should have a further 20% of interdisciplinary learning, right? The world isn't divided into subject disciplines. Subject disciplines are definitely useful for some for some things, but equally, it's really, really useful to understand how, how subject disciplines interconnect in the combination of history and philosophy and science and art and poetry and music and understanding a culture, for example. Um, and so, yeah, like th things do get very, like, it's interesting what you said about how things get so, so shut down. Like it's, people are very threatened, it seems, by, by any threat to the, to I think that's the true. Again, I just want to be clear. I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying that those three examples from my own life mean that they're going to be like that for everyone either, you know? So some of my friends I met when I was doing that snowboarding uh, season away, they wanted to learn by being taught. That's absolutely fine, isn't it? I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that if someone yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. uses their agency to opt into that specific way of learning. And most people, not everyone, of course, some people even, I don't know the numbers on this, of course, but some people like to learn to play instruments through being taught, don't they? And there are pros and cons. So I can't read music, for example. So when I walk into a room with, used to walk into a room with my band and they say, what key is this in? I don't know. Because to me, I'm just playing music. And there are other people in the band though, who are classically trained. So they'd learn in a very academic way. So they brought something different into the room. And at States of Mind, we probably call that constellation learning rather than pyramid thinking. So, you know, in a constellation, you have different people who bring different things at different times, who shine brighter at different times. And in that band, we had five people and everyone had learned in different ways. Everyone liked different types of music. And we wrote the songs together. I would bring in the song as in the melody on the guitar and the lyrics and we'd co-produce it. And that's a very normal thing in many contexts, isn't it? it? Often at work, in a band, but at school, that is deemed by the status quo narrative to be harmful. So if you think about it in that sense, it's very, very much absurd. And I think that's why it's important or has been important for me to try and figure out why, because it's not because teachers are bad people or evil, or it's not because people like getting into really leery, aggressive uh, commentaries on social media. No one wants that. But I think there are very specific reasons why it looks and feels like this and why I think you described basically there, James, a binary, didn't you? Why there's binary thinking. And what we're talking about here, I think, is very nuanced. We're not talking about binaries. And we've talked mm. about middle way before was is an aristotelian concept isn't it you know the fact that once you if you sit at one end of a binary it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to exert meaningful change because the vast majority of people are not at that binary and if you push that to the end of where it goes you end up with fascism and communism so you've got to be very careful haven't you with taking a very extreme position at the end of a binary without listening to other people mm. and accepting nuance and challenge it's so interesting. And I've even seen like quite a lot, like those two words, binary and nuance, have been weaponized by the people who want to maintain the status quo. They're like, oh, you're bound to say that it's all not a binary and you just want nuance. Like, what do you mean by that? And it's, it's very interesting. And, and, and I love the, the example that you just gave because all of these musicians who are all taught in these very different ways, they can all jam, baby. <laughs> they can all come together and make beautiful harmonies. What a, what a, what a metaphor for, for what we're talking about here. Hello, friends. 
If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to keep the conversation going, including by interacting directly with Chris, then I heartily recommend that if you haven't done so already, you join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, now almost a thousand strong. In the autumn term, we had a bit of a hibernation after the Rethinking Ed conference, and things quietened down a little in the Mighty Network, but we're now coming out of hibernation, blinking into the dazzling light as we try to make sense of 2023, and the community is starting to quietly buzz and hum again with the sounds of spring. We now have daily posts on a range of topics, and here are some examples that you may find of interest. One being that I think probably the most interesting question that I ask in this podcast is when I ask people about the moments of significant learning, the, the moments that have shaped them as people. And so we have a thread where people have been sharing their moments of significant learning. There was a post about Catherine Burblesing quitting as the social mobilities are, which turned into a fascinating thread about expeditionary learning. And there was also a question inspired by a future guest on this podcast, Derry Hannam. And we're running a book club currently about his fascinating book, Another Way is Possible, Becoming a Democratic Teacher in a State School. And I'll be interviewing Derry next month. Inspired by this book, I asked the question, why do you think what you think? Why do you want to challenge the status quo? In other words, why are you listening to a Rethinking Education podcast rather than something that has a more traditional bent? And so if you're interested in any of that stuff, and if you would like to take part in this book club in advance of the interview with Derry Hannam next month, please get yourself involved. Again, there's a link in the show notes as well as links to those particular posts. So, if you haven't done so already, please join us at rethinking-education.mn.co or you can download the Mighty Networks app and search for Rethinking Education. The links are in the show notes. And if you have already joined the community but you haven't engaged with it of late, I warmly invite you to re-engage to sign up for the Daily Digest emails if you haven't done so already so that you will receive a lovely dose of positivity in your inbox a few times a week. Further to this, my friends, if you're appreciating these Rethinking Education conversations and would like to express that in some way, you can become a patron of this podcast in return for various benefits, including a free copy of the book and access to some online training in self-regulated learning. Visit patreon.com forward slash repod to find out more. Alternatively, if you prefer, you can make a one-off donation at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. I don't actually drink coffee, but there isn't a buy me a herbal tea website. However, obviously times are tough, cost of living and all that, and so if you aren't able to contribute in this way, you can also support the show in other ways. Leaving a lovely glowing review on iTunes really helps to boost the old algorithm and push it into people's feeds. Sharing an episode with a friend or sharing a link and some positive energy on social media. All such contributions, however great or small, are massively appreciated by myself and help to ensure the long-term future of the podcast. Now let's get back to our fascinating conversation with Dr. Chris Bagley. So why do we have this ridiculous system, Bagley? Shadow cultures and the tyranny of school and state. Right, so, so there are three big ideas that we're going to get into. We've touched upon two of them already. The order of three... And I saw a brilliant talk that you did about that. I'll stick a link to this in the show notes if anyone, anyone wants to go deep into it. 
Um, the Tower of Right Knowledge is the second one. And the myth of the heroic individual is number three. So let's take them in that order. What is the order of three? Um, how yeah. how how deep does this rabbit hole go? Yeah, it's pretty deep. And I first of all should probably explain what, what I mean by shadow cultures. And it's inspired by two writers, really. John White, who you might be aware of, who was at the Institute of Education, is a fantastic writer. And an academic called Eckersley. And various other different people describing similar things. But the shadow culture to me is something that permeates the present, but is somewhat invisible to us. Something that's unconscious, but continues to shape in a very meaningful way what's going on in our society. And you can't separate schooling or education from society. So I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is talk about what are the some of the historic narratives that might have led to some things that we've just been describing, James, if that's okay. So the order of three, if I was to describe it in a sentence, is this idea that human beings are divisible into three innately ordained categories. So you might look at that as three classes. You might look at that as the order of three in the Middle Ages, which looks very different to the class system. And then Plato and Aristotle described it in another way. And what I'm going to do is go back to the beginning. So what I wanted to do is try and figure out why is it in England we still have a society that is underpinned by ideas where there's an order of three. So New Labour even, at the beginning of the, I think 2001, wrote a paper where they talked about young people being innately struggling, average or superior. That's the language they used in some of their work. You might remember this, James, from when New Labour came in. Mm -hmm. And today, obviously, we see the same things happening. And I'll come to today shortly. But what if we go back to prehistory, there's an, a writer called Joseph Campbell who wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he and various other people that I've read have looked back through history and they've found this idea of an innately ordered three, an order of three for humankind, going back all the way to ancient Germanic culture, Indo-European culture, the Near East, North Africa. And one of the first images that you see in the archaeology is the cosmic egg. And the cosmic egg is something that's observable in Indonesia, China, Western Europe, the Near East. And it's this idea that there's a hole. I'm drawing a circle here, which is not great for a podcast. But if you think about the entire existence of human um history and existence and experience as being in a circle. And within that cosmic egg, what's off, what you often see is three layers. And there's less people at the top, more at the middle, and more again at the bottom. So it's almost like a triangle within an egg-shaped uh, mass. And you can see that on artwork. And Joseph Campbell describes it as one of the monomyths. And what he means by that is a myth that has permeated across the world. He was obviously inspired by psychoanalytic writers such as Jung and others and you can see this visibly when you go back and the first time it's really clear and written down is in the first scholarly cultures in ancient Babylon and it's incredible when you see some of the stone tablets that have been dug up and I mean the fact that they're stone means that they've lasted which is absolutely mind-boggling and beautiful and some of them are from 1800 BC in the city of Ur which is now in Iraq and the Mesopotamia was arguably in my opinion and the opinion of many others 
the forerunner of Western society. So one of the things I've learned through reading for this book is the fact that Western society comes from Eastern society, depending on how you frame your geography. So modern day Iraq, Mesopotamia, you can see tablets dug up and within those tablets, they've written that there are people divisible into three different classes. So the bottom of the slave class called the wardom, and then there's the Ashkenum in the middle, and I think it's the Mushkenum or the upper class, the patriarchy, the aristocracy. And only the upper class had education at that time. So you can see that visibly on the stone tablets. And there are authors like uh, a French author called Dumsile and George Duby and others who write about this being observable throughout the ages. And there's other examples in ancient Persia. There's examples of this in ancient Germanic cultures. And again, it's codified very specifically by Plato in fourth, I think it's the fourth century BC, possibly a little bit later than that. And he described human beings as inherently divisible into three cosmic categories that are ordained by a higher force. They're not subject to challenge. And the first is the kings or the gold class, the philosophers. If anyone's read the Republic, they might be aware of this. He also talks about this in, in his laws. And the middle class were the silver, the auxiliaries, who were destined to pretty much be the protectors and the guardians, is the word he used, of the philosopher kings. And then below that, you have the iron or brass class, which is the peasantry and the craftsmen. And also slaves would have been part of that, although he doesn't mention them directly. So you can see evidence of this order of three going back way before scholarly societies. And then you have it in ancient Babylon and Sumeria. And then you see it in ancient Greece. And what it did is it that, that then carried through into Christianity and was piggybacking on the Roman Empire as well. So Roman society similarly was split into, there's a senatorial and equestrian classes at the top. They were the rulers, they owned the land, they were the military uh, elite. And then you had the plebeians who were the freemen who could ostensibly vote, but were often very much oppressed. If you read Livy's work and other historians at the time, you'll notice that. And then below them, you obviously have the slaves and there were an enormous amount of slaves in ancient Rome, sometimes more slaves than anybody else, which is quite a fascinating thing to behold. So as you can see there, there was three very specific classes there, sometimes four, depending on how you define it, but it's a very hierarchical society. And I'll try and rush a bit now, James, because this is quite long and I, we could talk for hours on this particular narrative. But then when you get to the middle ages, what you had was, a society in Anglo-Saxon England, which because of the history and the ancient cultures that had already emerged with this sort of order of three embedded in it and encoded within uh, behaviours and ways of conceptualising the world, it was already ready for the Romans when they arrived. So there was an idea that there was the earls at the top, then the thanes, and then the servants and slaves below them. And what you're probably noticing from this is it seems to be very, very persistent across cultures, this particular think and in the middle ages it became redefined as the three orders and that's sort of language i've stolen but slightly inverted but the three orders is something that was written about amazingly and uh, you know we know sometimes when you're reading you have a sort of mic drop moment and you think wow well the most prominent anglo-saxon person wrote about the three orders and that was um alfred the great so he actually wrote this down about those three orders. And th there were many, many paintings that show this from the era, which is fascinating. And 
lots of different uh, forms of artwork as well, like tapestries that have this put onto it. And sometimes it's done representing a tree. So if you know anything about ancient myths, again, I'm drawing a tree with my hands here, it just helps me to think about it. But um, the, the whole of what is, is often defined by the cosmic tree. And on the tree in one of these tapestries, you've got the peasantry at the bottom in the slave class, and then you've got the, the knights and the rulers in the middle. And interestingly, the newly emerging Christian priests and the clergy at the top. So I found that very interesting. And they defined it like this. Alfred the Great described it as those who fight. So that would be the nobility and the, the ruling kings, the divine right of kings you might have heard of, for those of you interested in religion. They're in the middle and at the top you have the clergy. So those who fight, those who pray, and at the bottom, those who work. And of course, none of these things are probably literally the case in terms of society. They're more a way of thinking, a knee-jerk reaction to describing people and placing them in groups in your mind. Because there was obviously a merchant class in the Middle Ages as well, and they don't really fit into that. So it's complicated. But essentially, that's how people like Eilfric of Ancham, who was a cleric, wrote about it. And at that time, France and England, because of the nature of uh, British history, were very much together and the, the people were speaking French in the court at that time. You see this order of three in France and England. So it's still there. And every time I started reading into the next phase of the history, I was noticing it's still very entrenched. And of course, you're still only getting at this point in terms of schooling, the first school, James. So at this point, you get monastic education. And in the early part of Christianity from the sort of 5th century AD up to about, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred AD. It was almost exclusively the clergy who were having any schooling at all. So it was mostly for the monastic purpose, purpose that you would have education. And it was very clear then that the vast majority of, of it was theology. So what was truth, and we'll come to this with the second theme, but what was deemed absolute truth was God's word. And it started to shift a little bit later on in the 12th century Renaissance, and you start to get emergence of other ideas from ancient Greece coming in again. But this, this idea of the order of three, or the three orders as it was called, was very, very fixed. And you can see evidence of this even in up to the 17th century in writings. So it was very much a knee-jerk reaction, an entrenched shadow culture that was still existing in the minds of people. And Eric Fromm writes really beautifully about this, who's a psychologist who wrote in the post-World War II era. And he talks about how at that time, society was a very static, rigid, structuralized whole. And that, if you think about the cosmic egg, it's sort of that repeated. So you have a structuralized, rigid whole where you have the nobility, the aristocracy, or the kingship class alongside the clergy with the peasantry and the slave class underneath. So that's, that continued all the way through the Middle Ages until Protestantism emerged. And then things were rehashed. So if you read the words of like Martin Luther or John Calvin, what you'll tend to find is a shift in the language, but a very similar agenda and a very similar way that the, this particular shadow culture presents itself. So anyone who's aware of Protestantism will be aware of the idea of predestination and might be aware of the idea of the calling or the vocation. So these are, in my opinion, they're quite pernicious phrases because what they do is they allow the Protestant clergy to remove popery so you don't you can have a direct relationship with God if you are a Protestant whereas in the Catholic Church everything is run through the Catholic priesthood and it's a very different way of conceptualizing religion 
But what happened within Protestantism, and this was really driven through in the 19th century with Methodism in England, was the idea that you're born with a calling, that you're born with a God-given vocation, and that's fixed. So you have the order of three continually rehashed, repackaged, reformulated. So from the sort of 16th century onwards, you had this idea that education might be for all, but people like John Comanius, who was a Protestant, uh, a religious and Christian theologian alongside a schoolman in England, one of the early schoolmen he was called, he said he thinks education for all should happen. It didn't happen for a long time, of course. But the idea is that you learn to put things into their order of, order of superior versus inferior. And the purpose of going there to school was to be a disciple. So the word discipline appears to come from disciple. And it's ah. usually the same way that it was then. You know, you're only you're only exerting or promoting good discipline as a school in many ways, arguably, if you have people who are accepting of what is given to them, accepting of the rules and the behavior policies, etc. So that's translated through the ages. And the idea that there's a there's a calling, a God-given vocation, that carried all the way through into the 19th century. And to cut a very, very long story short, and I apologise to listeners because I'm cutting out almost everything here, just trying to pull out the really important bits. But we have the emergence of the class system, don't we, in the industrial era. So at the end of the 18th century, we start to get this idea that human beings are divisible into three orders. So we have the upper class aristocracy, the middle class, which emerged sort of post-Civil War era in the 16, uh, six, late 1600s. And this idea that that's the working class are a race and that they're born into this particular class or caste. And then you have scientific racism and IQ tests develop, which are developed by people in the middle and upper classes, predominantly the middle class bourgeoisie, people like Francis Galton, spearheaded and backed up by a very problematic reading of things like Darwin. The idea that the poor are destitute or um, salacious because they're born that way, not because of societal structures that are impinging upon them, and that the purpose of the middle class and the upper class was to rule. And that's exactly the same narrative as Plato put forward 600 BC, and supported also by Aristotle, who I haven't mentioned, but he had the same view, essentially. Aristotle, by the way, said that slavery is a natural state, which is quite an interesting thing to suggest. So in the 19th century, <laughs> we, have that, we have that class system, don't we, that becomes very, very rigid, very, very fixed. The idea of education for all at that point was deemed utterly absurd by politicians in the Whig Party and the Tory Party. It was just deemed lunacy because people are, some people are born inferior and they were using those exact words, you know, the mm. inferior and the inferior. And once the middle class bourgeoisie got the vote in 1832, having sort of allied with the working class a little bit, before that, they sort of segmented themselves off, which is one of the reasons in England why we didn't have a revolution, but there are many other reasons than that, which we can't go into today. So then, of course, you get into the 20th century, and again, skipping quite a lot here, but the really interesting thing happens in the post-World War II era of the tripartite system in education, which many people will, will know about. And Cyril Norwood, who um, created that particular way of conceptualizing and phrasing things, was an avowed Platonist, it's important to recognise that all the politicians of that era and today mostly as well were privately educated, public schools in England, and 
public schools mostly and Oxford and Cambridge almost entirely up until the mid 20th century they only learned the classics and the classics were written by people from ancient Greece and ancient Rome and they were imbued with this idea of social hierarchy the public school system was founded upon it and some of the public schools were founded on Spartan approaches to education and Spartans also known as Lacedaemonians they separated their society into three essential castes and they propped that up through essentially beatings and very aggressive military rule and children being the property of the state and the idea that the Hobbesian idea goes all the way back to then which is that children are born bad and you have to make them good and the public school system inspired the state school system which eventually emerged through pressure from the workers movements but what you then obviously get is the tripartite system of education, which, which is recreating the same order of three, but within an education for all climate. And we didn't have education for all in England, astonishingly, until the 1950s, which is well over 150 years later than Germany and way later than France as well and other, and other European nations. And that's because it was deemed to be an absolute status, a state of fact that poor people are born inferior. They're not born able to access learning. And it was only through people like R.H. Tawney and other labour um, thinkers and philosophers and campaigners in the early 20th century that we even got to where we are now in terms of education for all. Last little bit of the story, which I think is important. Some of you will remember, if you're old enough, Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. And there was so much pressure at that point to remove grammar schools and to stop the 11 plus based on what we know from science now about the absurdity of the grammar school selection method, the damage it does on the social fabric of the nation, the absurdity of IQ tests, which are still being used. But the, what Keith Joseph said was, well, OK, if we can't have selection between schools, if we can't have tripartite, we're going to make sure that we have selection within schools so we can keep the order of three going, so we can keep this ideology that has no scientific basis for going in the schools. And essentially, we still have that, don't we? We still have setting and streaming in England. We still have this idea that some young people are not educatable alongside their peers. I work in those education provisions and have done for many years. It's very important to, to notice that in countries like Italy, in countries like Portugal, there are no alternative provisions. Their problem is, how do you have inclusion within the same building? In England, people say things like, is inclusion exclusion or is exclusion inclusion? Because we have this idea that is contradictory and paradoxical that inclusion equals exclusion. And that's all based around this very, very ancient, unconsciously held belief, in my opinion, this shadow culture that sits below the decision making that happens around schooling. And there has never been any scientific evidence to demonstrate that young people from certain backgrounds are born inferior. But our education system still behaves as if it it's a no-brainer mm. and that some young people can't be educated in mainstream schools which is acceptable only if you think there's something inherently wrong with English children that is not inherently wrong with Portuguese or Italian children and that is ludicrous isn't it so that's that's not what's going on here so what's going on here is much right. more complicated factors that go back a very 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 long time spearheaded by the development of an English school system that's been based on and structured around and almost entirely driven by a version of truth, which in itself comes from classical Greece and Rome. 
Wow. <laughs> what a what an answer. That was stunning. Um, I've been spuriously scribbling notes here. I mean, where do you begin? It, I mean, one thing that struck me as you were talking is that, like, like you say, there's no scientific basis for it. In a very real sense, it's a myth, right? The order of three is a myth. It's a it's a fabrication of, of reality. But in another sense, it's absolutely real in the sense that it has existed for thousands of years across all of these cultures and in all of these manifestations. And that's not that doesn't seem like a myth. That seems like something that is this is this idea that keeps reproducing itself as though it was real as though as though it was you use this word this phrase earlier innately ordained as though it's by nature that, that this is just sort of god's way or nature's way that things are sort of uh, like you know human animal mineral or vegetable mineral animal or whatever you know that that these are sort of um almost like consequences of just yeah there's just the physical makeup of the universe right but but you can see how how uh my goodness and I, yeah there was a very skillfully organized answer the way that you sort of illustrated how this idea has been replicated and even to this day you know this um this persists just to go back and i'll keep going on about <laughs> keep going on about this bond and the beatles book but that that came up again right when uh, when when the beatles first came out and they had like long hair and that was outrageous. Like nobody had long hair. Like everybody had a short back and sides. Like Bond had a short back and sides. That was just the way that you looked. And for people to have to have long hair. And when they first went to America, people were just like do, endlessly asking them questions about their hair. Like, why don't you cut your hair? And then George Harrison famously went, I got mine cut this morning. And it was all, you know. Um, but you know, but there were really serious conversations around then saying that they couldn't possibly have written these songs. There's no way. Could such a gifted and brilliant genius uh, songbook have come from from four working class oiks? And even recently, like when on McCartney, when it was McCartney's 80th birthday, there was a piece in the Times, I think it was, saying the, the headline was, "Did the Beatles just get lucky? Like, did were they just chances who just happened to just you know they just caught the wave at the right time?" And even now, like people are sort of. Uh, are trying to maintain this order, and they're like, it, 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 it's such a challenge to the, to your worldview to accept that actually talent is evenly distributed throughout the population. That as as absurd as it is, you know that that th this order of three is absolutely rigid in in many people's minds to this day, as you very so yeah, uh, very yes, eloquently illustrated. I think that what what's interesting about it though is that there have been many people along the way who've challenged it very assertively you know mm -hmm. so in the 19th century someone called robert owen some people might have heard of was a really interesting person who set up communities and really genuinely nice for its era homes is quite patriarchal his approach but the idea for him was that working class people are struggling and you know drink and are licentious and all these words thrown at them in the 19th century because of societal pressures upon them not because it's something innately wrong with them and Owenism took off for about 20 or 30 years in the 19th century until it was very aggressively shut down by the British state. And if you were an Owenite, you could be subjects of really serious repercussions, including being transported, including being uh, locked up. And the Chartist, similar, William Lovett was locked up for suggesting, amongst many other things, A, that working class people are intelligent and should vote. And 
also he for writing education tracks saying that all young people should be equally able to be educated and there are, there are other people like Margaret Macmillan, who was a really wonderful woman who was part of the school boards movement at the end of the 19th century, who pushed for similar things. So there's the reason we now even have education for all, James, and the reason I am, you know, I'm a doctor now, right? My parents came from a working class background. If I was born 50, 60 years before I was born, there was literally no way that would have happened. And that narrative and that story you just told about the Beatles is a really good example of that, isn't it? Because it, we, someone like me would have been believed it was impossible to demonstrate intelligence, or as Plato would put it, impossible to demonstrate reason. So mm. the only reason we're here today, and we, there is a relatively speaking, significantly greater chance and greater openness than there has been in previous generations is because people have died for it. People have been banished for it. So I think that really galvanizes me at the moment thinking, well, if people in the 19th century were getting shot for protesting or being sent to Australia and because they thought it was right for their child to receive an education, for their child to be able to learn at secondary school age and to have an opportunity to move out of the industrial work that, of their parents, then I guess the least I can do is try and demonstrate these arguments, you know, and at least demonstrate that actually this isn't an innate thing. It isn't ordained by God that some people are born inferior and it's actually our systems that are problematic rather than the people who are living with them. Mm, right, right. Thank you. And fascinating to hear about these, these dissenters as well, Robert Owen, uh, William Lovett. It seems like, you, you, and you're right, you know, we do like, it's not so long ago, is it, that that people did not pull their punches in in talking about about working class people i remember there's a quote from churchill who was against the building of of uh, more railways because like, it's just going to encourage working class people to travel like it's really not very long ago that that people were just like not hiding it just very openly you know quite happily talking in these you know in these very strong terms um and and now they don't do that so much right you don't hear conservative education ministers you know you hear, i think i heard gove saying recently that you know that talent is is evenly distributed throughout society and that it's all about equality of opportunity um and yet this you know like aspects of this mindset still still persist and so where do you what do you see as like if you're continuing this this struggle from from the owenites on down where do you see the battle line currently do you think that it's about ability grouping do you think it's about the about language is it about mindset where is what's the what's the the front in this in this eternal battle currently would yeah, you say the front line. well i think we still have a lot of things in the education system in england i'm gonna call it the school system because i think they're different things actually education and schooling hmm. and one of them is the algorithm that ensures one third of children fail that's classic order of three thinking right logically ludicrous and doesn't exist pretty much anywhere else and the idea that you have a norm referenced rather than criterion referenced way of evaluating someone's success on an exam is ideological at best and scientifically illiterate at worst we still have the setting and streaming we absolutely do have that we still have um, some areas of the country where there are grammar schools and secondary moderns and i would also argue that there are the expansion of alternative provision in this country demonstrates that there's a very clear sense amongst many people who are holding the purse strings in government and shaping policies that some young people are 
a little bit like what Marx would have called the lumpen lumpen proletariat. You know, they're sort of underclass of people that can't be educated alongside other people. And that, to me, is a symptom of this sort of thinking. And the enormous levels of exclusion we have in England compared to Scotland and Wales, for example, and most countries of Northern Europe, it's not a political issue, for example, in many countries, because we don't have it to the same, they don't have it to the same extent. So there are lots of sort of frontline battleground areas. And what's happened is, in England, the language of the order of three has sort of dissipated. But in some ways, that's more pernicious, because it's coming out in more subtle and more convoluted ways so the setting and streaming in schools is obviously one of those things but also if you set up an exam system that consigns one third to failure what you're immediately doing there is you are describing one third of the entire country's population as inferior not even based on their own performance but based on a referencing procedure that you've invented to deliberately create winners and losers so those are, the, those are the front lines for me. And I think the thing that's really exciting at the moment is there are a lot of school leaders and a lot of parents and young people, States of Mind is one organisation doing this, and there are many others, who are very overtly challenging this and doing things differently. So, you know, we know people like Lucy Stevens who are they're not using any of this. They're deliberately acting against these narratives in the way that they position their schools. We've got people running learning communities like The Garden, like um, The Hive, We've got a lot of democratic schools across Europe and things are shifting away from this. And I think another evidence point for me is that home education is skyrocketing because parents are drawing their children out of this system. And those are usually the parents whose children are ending up perceiving themselves to be at the bottom of the hierarchy there. And I've met many of these parents, both in the prison sector, the youth justice sector and in the PRU and meeting them through visiting learning communities. These are people who have been constantly told year after year after year that they are not as clever as everybody else based on a very problematic hierarchical system underpinned by an exam uh, procedure. And that goes back to 1860s, James, when you know we, the idea was that if we're going to have education for all, we, we have to find a way of making sure that we remain at the top of that hierarchy. How conscious that was is a very good question. And as a psychologist, I'd like to make the hypothesis that for many people, I don't think it is conscious. I don't think it's conscious, for example, on the part of people like Michael Gove. I don't think he's trying to harm children by implementing some of these policies, things like the EBAC. But they're, they're still there, aren't they? And like you said, they're, they're continuing to exert an influence. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um... For sure, and I was at an event uh, last week. There's a there's a campaign. One of the fronts in this in this, um, if we're going to use that metaphor of a battle, is uh, a campaign called "Times Up for the Test." The eleven plus, which um, weirdly, when, when Labour abolished it in the sixties, I think they, so they it was basically like a recommendation. They didn't mandate it for whatever reasons. They felt the need to soft pedal it, um, and so we've got these weird little pockets now where the eleven plus is still in place. And there was some very, very powerful uh, testimonies and speeches at this, at this event last week. Uh, one of the speakers was um, this um, person called Jackie Moulton, I think she's called, who was the, she was like the chief of the Metropolitan Police or something. And she was like the person that Prime Suspect was, was based on. Um, and she had this, but she failed the 11 plus as a kid and her, and her two older siblings had passed. And it was this big deal. She felt all this big sense of shame. 
all throughout her life. And it was it was only after she'd finished this incredibly illustrious career and had had Helen Mirren playing her. But it's after after she retired from the police and she did a master's and she got a master's certificate and she held it up and she was like, that was the, the moment that I put that, that I slayed that demon from the 11 plus. What a thing to put on an 11 year old kid. Um, it's incredible. And so if people want to want to um, support that campaign, there's um, Time's Up for the Test uh, on Twitter and there's Time's Up for the Test.org. You can get involved with that campaign because that's that seems to be like low hanging fruit, man. I mean, my goodness, why is the 11 plus still a thing? Let's go on to let's go on to number two. If 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 you're happy to, yeah. is that all you have to say about that one? Let's do it. Yeah. And right. I think I been, go on, James. No, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say the Tower of Right Knowledge is is the next one. Yes. Um, right. Okay. Where does this come from? Well, I guess it's important to you know remind ourselves that the curriculum as it stands today hasn't popped out of nowhere. Right. The way that we define what a curriculum is also has a very long history. And I sort of did the same approach in trying to disentangle this as well. And hopefully what the first bit there was, the aim was to try and make people aware that some of those narratives around social hierarchy, there's never been any evidence base for them. And there are many examples of them being subverted both now and historically. And that has succeeded and it is continuing to succeed and it will continue to succeed. So I feel very hopeful about that because people are awakening, aren't they? And they're not going to accept their child being labelled stupid from the age of five because they put on giraffe table instead of zebra table, um, which happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I met a five-year-old kid who's in a very academic primary school who's describing himself as stupid already. He's five years old. And that's the kind of thing that this order of three does. It's, you know, there's three different tables in his class and he's on the bottom one and he knows it. So there's a curriculum element to that there, though, isn't there? There's a specific reason he's doing an academic curriculum when he's five years old involving sums and... Uh, written work and whole school tasks and whole class activities that you can't access so I started to think well again that's not because policymakers are evil surely it's not because of that so how did we get to this point where we have a curriculum in England that is driven by Michael Gove's idea of the EBAC isn't it now in secondary school so we have three core subjects and four additional subjects so hold that in mind so that's seven subjects because we're going to come back to that number and there's no accident that the number seven and the number three have come up. Now, one of the things I didn't mention earlier is that the first person to conceptualize the number three is a number that in, is wholeness and perfection was Pythagoras. And Pythagoras inspired Plato. And obviously before that, there are many, many intuitive reasons why the, the number three has become a really important one. But the number seven has had a very long history also. So I wanted to look at where the curriculum comes from and what I found, which was really mind-boggling, was evidence in, again, ancient Mesopotamia of young people sat in rows, the teacher at the front, this is 2000 BC, there was dug up a classroom with, I think it was 10 rows of seats and then lots of tablets where teachers had marked work by young people. So they'd scribbled things out, they'd written comments like, that was rubbish, do better next time. Uh, there was really clear evidence of a school system that unbelievably, James, looks very similar to ours today. You had children sat in rows. You had children learning myths, royal praise poetry, 
learning epics. There's there's uh, a narrative there about them them learning a dead language that was no longer being used. So some of them were still using using cuneiform when Akkadian was the main language, which might ring bells for people now whose schools are bringing about Latin. So one of the main themes of this Tower of Right Knowledge hypothesis, and these are all hypotheses, James, by the way, I'm not saying I'm right about these, they're just me trying to figure out how we got to where we are. They're very much open to challenge. One of the main themes is the elite filter. So the knowledge that was learned in ancient Mesopotamian schools was very much filtered through the elite at the time. And that's why they were learning royal praise poetry. That's why they were learning the epic myths and sagas that made the king look great in those nations at the time. And the thing that really boggled my mind was that think about what the law was like in those days, other institutions that we have now. You know, it was it was legal then to kill your slave whenever you liked. Um, think about economics of that era. You know, you, people were dealing in grain and the local priesthood would look after the grain. And that was how you that was your money. So all of these other institutions were completely unrecognizable, but you could drop a Mesopotamian teacher from 1800 BC into a classroom in England, change the language, give them a curriculum, and it's basically the same thing. So one of the reasons that stayed the same, obviously, is because of the order of three, because it maintains a social hierarchy, and Pierre Bourdieu has written a lot about that, hasn't he, in terms of modern, um, the modern way of conceptualizing that. But then when you look a little bit further into the nearer the present day. So again, we go back to ancient Greece and Plato and Aristotle had schools of learning and their conception of learning and particularly Plato's was very, very rigid. It was very authoritarian. And he said that anyone who was going to be taught needed to be filtered through Plato, needed to be filtered through uh, his brain so that anyone whose poetry was being shared, for example, was appropriate and legitimate for children. And that has echoes today, of course, doesn't it? And the second narrative, there's the elite filter, and then there's this, the restoration of a sacred past is always present. It's present now, it's present then. So the idea that you need to draw on ancient ideas, ancient histories, and what Stephen Ball calls the uh, curriculum of the dead, basically. And that's the only knowledge that counts. So it's not possible to co-construct knowledge in the moment. All the knowledge happened before, all you have to do is learn what's already happened. What's, and what Ma Matthew Arnold in the 19th century said, the best of what's been thought and said, which Michael Gove repeated word for word before introducing the EBAC. And I'm going to skip to Aristotle because this, again, was a mic drop moment when I started reading about Aristotle and the idea of the trivium and the quadrivium. Some of you might know about that. So the trivium wasn't codified by Aristotle in his school, but it was very much implicit in his writings, in various different writings like the ethics and other, and his logic. And the trivium has logic, grammar and rhetoric. It's very difficult to write in those days. So writing wasn't really as big a thing because obviously creating stone tablets every time a young person wants to record something is complicated. And I know you're really into this through your oracy work, James, but rhetoric was, was the main part of the curriculum. And it was the primary object of learning and the primary approach to learning all the way through the Roman Empire from Aristotle downwards. Hmm. But the thing that really st struck me about this is the fact that the trivium has those three things in it. And the quadrivium, astronomy, geometry, philosophy, and I forget the fourth one. But there's, there's essentially, that's seven subjects, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of astonishing when you think about we, we're now having that 
again, and we've always had that seven subjects uh, agenda. And there was a person called Isocrates at the time, not Socrates, Isocrates, who was a sophist. And he liked this idea that there was, and the other members of his group, didn't, they didn't think there was a universal truth. Plato thought he knew universal truth. And the purpose of education was to transmit universal truth into the children so that the children would then learn the same thing. They would do it through various different curriculum approaches. But essentially, it was very didactic. And Aristotle took this on as well. You know what the word sophistry means now, James, right? Sophistry is tended to be quite a poisonous word. And the word sophistry means trying to pull the wool over your eyes, speaking out of turn or trying to manipulate. And that's come from Plato, whereas the sophists, if you actually read what they said, they said, a little bit like people running learning communities now, that there isn't necessarily a universal truth. And we have to co-create what that is through conversation and through learning rhetoric and through talking. But that form of curriculum obviously fell by the wayside, whereas Plato and Aristotle's has become lionized, that approach with a specific number of core subjects. And there's a Roman called Varro, hundreds of years later, who codified that into the seven liberal arts. Some of you might be aware of the seven liberal arts. Mm. Again, the quadrivium is the four subjects, but the core subjects are the three big ones, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And you learn those in order. And this is starting to get us to the tower of right knowledge, James. I'll come to that in a minute. And that gets transmitted through the Roman Empire. And if you want to be a member of the Roman aristocracy, if you want to be in the equestrian class or a senatorial member of society, it became the case that you would learn ancient Greek classics and, you, and you'd learn that often through and via the seven liberal arts. There were some Roman authors in there like Virgil, but there are also a lot of ancient Greek authors in there. And the idea was that if you wanted to have an educational credential, if you wanted to show your worth and your intelligence, you'd learn the seven liberal arts. So that was very much set in stone. And you can see that in early Anglo-Saxon writing, which is fascinating in the sort of fourth century AD, just at the wane of the Roman Empire in Great Britain. And you've got authors like Gildas who are writing like Virgil. So they're using uh, Ciceronian rhetorical devices in their, in their early writings. So this is someone who's been educated in the seven liberal arts, the three core subjects, the four additional subjects. So that was really fascinating when I read about that. And you could see the transition. And a lot of religious folk like Alcuin and Bede, the Venerable Bede, for example, they talk about learning these things. But in the early stages, it was only really the religious uh, clerics and a very small number of those who fight. Remember the order of three, those who fight, those who pray, those that work. Some of the nobility and the kings would learn, but it was predominantly the clergy. And obviously it was good for the clergy to have people that they were essentially I'm not going to use the word brainwashing, but manipulating or shaping through their knowledge of reading and writing and the religious word. So then what you get, and this is where it gets really interesting. So you get the marriage of Christian theology with the seven liberal arts. And that starts to happen after the Norman period, really. And the rediscovery of Aristotle and Plato, it was translated by Arab writers, and then it gradually finds its way to Northern Europe. And there's some amazing paintings. It's a shame I can't flash one into people's brains, like some kind of subliminal message. But there's a beautiful painting from the, I think it's the 14th or 15th century of this tower. And there's a nun leading a child into the tower. And at the bottom, you've got lots of little children learning grammar. And they'd learn things like Donatus or Priscian. And they're Roman authors, James. 
So think how many years ago that was. That's more than a thousand years prior. And you've got these children learning Latin grammar. And that's the first phase. Then they would learn rhetoric and then they would learn logic. Once you've got those three, you move up the tower and then you can learn astronomy, geology, philosophy. And I'm really having a mind blank on the fourth part of the quadrivium. He'll come back to me. Music, I think. Music. Right. There we go. And then at the top, above the quadrivium, you've got theology. So at the top, you've got a theologian stand sticking his head out the top of the tower, looking very proud of himself. So what you then get, and this this was when you had that fascinating period of the sort of the um, medieval scholastics who are trying to put people like St. Anselm in England and Thomas Aquinas, who are starting to put together a curriculum which involved the seven liberal arts with theology being the crowning achievement and trying to figure out how can you put those things together without it being heresy, which is really intriguing. And that sort of idea shaped the curriculum of the early universities, both in England and um, particularly in Paris. And again, missing out a lot here. What happens in the 16th and 17th centuries is very profound. In the 16th century, many of you will be aware the printing press gets invented. So no longer do you have to rely on rhetoric and learning grammar in, through you know, two kids sharing a gigantic textbook of Donatus and reading through grammar and doing it. And when you look back at some of the, there's some really interesting things where you have young people saying a bit about what it was like to learn these things. And it seemed to be unbelievably pedantic to the point where children were so mind crushingly bored that they were scribbling on desks in different schools around the country. And there's archeological evidence of this. So it was very pedantic. It was very much led by the, you know, the sage on the stage. It was usually a member of the clergy. And if you were poor, you're still really getting nothing up until the 15th century. You, know, you might have a little bit from your local clergyman or layman on um, grammar. And you did have song schools where some kids would, fascinatingly, they'd sing in Latin. So they'd learn the words, but they didn't know what they were singing. They didn't know the meaning of the words. So that's quite problematic, isn't it? When you've got a society with saying words and adopting a dogma, religious or otherwise, that they don't even understand, but they're singing in that language. So that's the kind of thing you're getting for the, for the poor. And the clergy within Catholicism was still utterly in charge of the message. And if you go back to Eric Fromm's thing again, this sort of structuralized whole, everyone knew their place. If you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, that's where you were born. There doesn't seem to have been much challenge against that. Although it's very difficult to know because the working poor didn't write, did they? So we don't really know a huge amount. And there were some revolts, of course. So there must have been pushback from the serfs. So I just want to talk about the invention of the printing press because this is, has enormous implications. And there was a French academic in the 16th century called Pierre Ramus. Petrus Ramus is another thing that people have called him. And within Protestantism, there was this growing idea that you, everyone must develop their own personal relationship to God. It cannot be anymore fed through God's elected clergy. So implicit in that, obviously, is that people need to learn stuff. Right. This, this idea of encyclopedic learning starts to take hold. And Philip of Melanchthon and Martin Luther talked a little bit about this as well, about creating systematized tracts that people could learn about so that they could become closer to God, so that they could find their calling. And then you start to get, Ramus was the first person to do it, and then this spread all around Northern Protestant Europe, this idea of 
textbooks and you'd have a page there and you would have subject and then that topic you know like you see curriculum maps now you have topics broken down into bits then you'd have the next thing mm. all learned in order all systematized and he criticized aristotle and said the problem with aristotle is his learning and his thinking isn't systematized so this is when we start to get what we have now so this idea of a systematized bit by bit by bit curriculum based right. on bookish learning based on reading and writing and moving away from rhetoric and learning this, the seven liberal arts from theology in that way and that's what we saw 16th 17th centuries and the debate started to be fierce then around who should be learning and this first sort of little musings around should we be educating everybody and then people like Francis Bacon who is the first scientist in many people's eyes saying that well, you can't educate the masses because they will have ideas above their station and that will make them unhappy actually so the idea that them being educated is bad for them which is really interesting looking back but that idea of systematizing structuralizing and ordering learning that really ballooned after the printing press, which makes sense, doesn't it? And there's a lot of really interesting debate around what this does to the human mind, how it changes the way we perceive ourselves and the world around us, and the extent to which we are now looking down at a page to learn rather than engaging with other human beings in conversation. Right. And that I find really exciting and very discombobulating, the idea that society would have changed really significantly when learning becomes something very different. Learning to do things right by answering questions on a page and doing examinations, for example, which also came out, came out at that time. Fast forwarding a little bit then, we didn't have really a solid sense that young people who are poor should be educated until the end of the 19th century. But what started to happen gradually is that it was deemed important for poor kids to learn the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And in the 19th century, that's something that some young people were able to access. But of course, we lived in a very hyper-industrialized, very class-based society. And there were things like monitorial schools. Have you heard of monitorial schools, James? So they were designed by these guys called Bell and Lancaster. And when you see pictures of them, there are hundreds of children in a big hall and older children with sticks. The birch used to be, ironically, well, not maybe ironically, maybe expectedly, the birch was the symbol of teachers throughout the Middle Ages and all the way up to the 19th century because the only way to keep kids doing such hideously boring, repetitive tasks was to beat them. To hit them. <laughs> and as we know in England, that wasn't ban banned until 1986. So yeah, right. in my lifetime, I was four years old. I could have been beaten when I was four at school. But anyway, we'll come back to that. But the monitorial schools, schools, the aim was that you give the working class education in these gigantic rooms, subject to very harsh discipline, so that they can learn their three R's, so that they can perform basic menial industrial tasks. So that was that was it for the working class, really, up until the end of the 19th century. Then what happened was that was the big shift, I think, was it started to become observable that England was falling behind other nations industrially, and they started looking to people like France and Germany and realizing that they their population was significantly more educated. And there was a sense then that it was important for more young people to receive a wider curriculum in England. But alongside that, and I'm going to skip to the end in a minute, James, because it's going on too long. But what was happening in the public schools is they were still learning the classics. And in Oxford and Cambridge, they were still learning the classics. That was a curriculum. But what was coming in from outside that 
were middle-class radicals who were industrialists, people like James Watt, people like Joseph Priestley. And they started to push when they got the vote in the 1830s for scientific parts of the curriculum as well. So you have the classics, the seven liberal arts over here, and theology still, that's still very present. But then coming from the other side here, you get the middle-class bourgeois who now have the vote, who have a lot of money, starting their own schools, which they called the dissenting academies. Most of them were, they weren't Anglican Christians, they weren't Church of England, they were Baptists or Congregationalists or Quakers. So they were banned from public office. And ironically, what that did is that stimulated them to create their own schools. And often they prioritize science and also art and some of the creative subjects. And what gradually started to happen was, and you see this in the 1904 national curriculum, was this idea of basically still seven subjects, but tweaked away from the ancient sort of Aristotelian and Middle Ages version of the curriculum. And you get science come in, art comes in, doesn't it? And then you've still got English, you've still got maths, and you've still got various humanities. So you start to get this curriculum that is a mashup of sort of classical Greek approach with science. And the 1904 curriculum and the 1988 curriculum look almost identical. And the EBAC is basically trying to recreate a much older system. But to cut a long story short, what happened there was the national curriculum became something that was embedded um, in the early part of the 20th century. It was accepted by that point that it wasn't going to be possible to not educate the working class poor and that needed to happen at least on some level. But it took a long, long, long time until post-World War II for it to be agreed that secondary education was legitimate for the, the working poor. Mm. And people like Winston Churchill voted the England's greatest hero, number one of all time. He blocked education for all throughout his entire career. He despised the idea. He was a eugenicist. And that was the sort of, you can see the push and pull there, can't you? The idea that, well, we need to industrialise more. We're losing money. We're going to lose the empire. We need to educate our children more. And, right, the yes. and then you had the classically educated public school Tories here trying to keep it traditional and exclude the working class. So that sort of shaped the 20th century curriculum. And what we have now, which is really intriguing, and again, thinking about referring to a sacred past that never happened, nothing uh. more than the EBAC. So the EBAC is three core subjects and four additional subjects, which is the exact same makeup of Aristotle's liberal arts going back to 400, 500 BC. And the way that's assessed continues to be in a way that quite deliberately and specifically drawing on the order of three that we talked about earlier, makes it very difficult and almost impossible for some young people to perceive that they've achieved anything, to perceive that they are able to leave school with something really meaningful for them. So as you can hopefully see there, James, the curriculum has changed a bit over time. But there are very specific things there that are embedded that I would probably call shadow cultures. And one of them is restoring a sacred past that never happened. One of them is this elite filter. And one last thing I'll mention is in 1988, when Kenneth Baker decided that the state had full control over the national curriculum, that was essentially a reversion to a much older form of curriculum control that was first instigated by Henry VIII in the 16th century when he created what I perceive to be the first school inspection regime. He called them visitations and clergy were able to go to schools 
think if this rings any bells for anyone listening, they were able to go to schools, they were able to see what the other clergy were teaching the children, and if they weren't teaching the children they thought they should be teaching them, they could be subject to harsh reprisals. Sacked, banished, etc. We now have Ofsted policing in a very similar way, where you have a rigid curriculum that's decided upon by an elite without the consent or contribution of anyone involved, including teachers and young people. And that's policed by a quasi-governmental organisation who are very supportive of the government status quo. And that makes the education and the curriculum extremely rigid. And the last theme I want to throw in, just the last sentence on this is, I think another really core factor that impels this sort of way of formulating the curriculum is the need for certainty. And it seems that human beings are very, find it really difficult to not feel certain, don't they? Well, we all have this to some extent. So the idea that you don't know what learning is or that the curriculum is doesn't have a specific endpoint or an outcome point, that's quite threatening. And that's always been the case. And you know, within the years of where religion was the form, you know, the, the pinnacle of the tower of right knowledge, it, you know, you could get harshly chastised, even executed for not teaching that curriculum. Today, we have a different tower of right knowledge. And obviously, the pinnacle of right knowledge in England now is going to Oxford or Cambridge. That's the pinnacle. And schools pretty much always sell themselves based on academic results. And the idea for children is you go through a curriculum in order. It's systematized, it's structured as it was when Ramus began this idea in the 16th century. And there's no such thing as the capacity for young people to create their own knowledge. They've got to follow what Stephen Ball calls the curriculum of the dead. They've got to follow things that have already happened before. They can't bring their own intelligence, wherewithal, knowledge, energy into the room because that's inappropriate. It's not following the curriculum. And the only appropriate thing you can really do within the English school structure now and in our curriculum we have now is learn academically and aim to reach the top of the tower, which is Oxford or Cambridge. Mm, thank you. My goodness. Another, <laughs> another absolute belter of an answer. Um, yeah, right. Wow. So, so, so just one thing on a minor point, because, uh, because when you said the seven subjects in the EBAC, my initial thought was, I sort of think of that as five subjects because it's basically English, maths, science, a humanity and a language. And so they only have to do five. But if you look at them, there's two ways of getting seven out of that. So there's English lit, English language, maths, science, geography, history, language. That's seven. Or if you just want to count the three sciences, so you've got English, maths, mm -hmm. biology, chemistry, physics, uh, humanity, language. So, yeah, but I can see exactly what you mean. It's all sounding horribly familiar, <laughs> isn't it? Like these echoes down the ages. And in a, in a sense... You know, I, I suppose you might say, well, like, why should it be different? You know, if 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 this is the way that things have been done, um, and and we've you know had all of this technological innovation, and you could argue that things have gotten better, like people's quality of life has improved throughout history. You know, like maybe there's an argument that people would say on the traditional side, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and 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 be very be very careful, I suppose, of of breaking things that that have led us to this point, because you know we don't know where that might lead, um, but but clearly as well, you know, that was a devil's advocate position, in case you couldn't oh. tell, um, yeah, the the hierarchy of knowledge, like you say, it plays out in all kinds of ways in. In, in the perceived hierarchy of the subjects. So of those that I just mentioned, there's a reason that they that maths and English appear 
first and second place on the, gov- on the I'm on the government's website at the moment, and science in a close third place, and then come humanities, and then come languages. You know, they're sort of continue to be sort of on a on a par, but probably humanities slightly above um, languages in kudos. And then you've got like this the so-called creative subjects, art, music, drama. Then you've got things like, you know, design tech, food tech, and then things like health and social care, which is sort of considered to be the bottom of the pile as far as I can tell. And likewise, in in a degree level, you know, the, the, the subjects like um, sociology often gets a hard time and media studies, really interesting, important subjects to study. Like I grew up, it was only about five years ago that I suddenly realised that there was a big hole in my understanding where sociology should be and started reading about that. Psychology also is often sort of sneered at a bit and looked down upon by the hard sciences, you know, because it all seems a bit woolly and sort of, you know, messy and human and complicated. Um, and something else that, that I was, I was, I was, I'm doing a project at the moment. You, you mentioned in the work about Oracy. I'm doing a project at the moment uh, with the National Gallery, an Oracy project, working with their gallery educators. Um, which is a really different form of, of you know, dialogue where they're, edu- they're they're trying to talk to people and educate visitors, visitors, young people and adults to the to the gallery, sharing this amazing collection of paintings. And they, yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating project. We're doing a five year project, and they're getting kids in um, three three um, classes of disadvantaged kids, essentially from three different schools, coming in over three years to um, to figure out how we can develop spoken language using the collection uh, to do that. It's a cool project. Um, but they they talk about one of the barriers that they find is that what they, they refer to as the hierarchy of knowledge, that there's a right way to think about these paintings. And it's by that guy who appears on on the culture show, whatever his name is, the guy who does art history programs on BBC Two. That's, that's the right way to think about paintings. And, the, you know, so one of the things that they so they say is things like, what do you, they're asking the kids, like, what do you notice? What can you see in this painting? Like, just name the bits, just break this down into little bits. And and it's okay to have your own opinion on this painting. You know, it's okay to, to hate Whistle Jacket, you know, that one of the horse that everyone goes on about. And, I'm like, it's quite a divisive painting. It's okay to not like that. You don't have to stroke your chin in wonder if you don't want it's all it's all those opinions are equally valid in some sense you know learn about whistle jacket fine learn about it and listen to people trying to argue for the the case for this being an amazing painting of a horse but this idea that there's that there's the right way to think about paintings that the there are the right books to read the right kinds of of music to listen to you know that like classical music is somehow more worthy than than rock and pop and grime and what have you and and on and on and on right we like we're constantly and it's just it seems like it's almost there's the similarity with the first point that you made about the order of three that 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 we it's just another like the hierarchy of humans is just another another yeah, I mean, they're, they're not disconnected, are they? They they absolutely intermingle and they interweave within <laughs> one another. And it's just such a long-standing approach to considering what knowledge is to have adults who perceive themselves to be in a position of authority, mm. young people, who they are, what to think, how to think, when to think, and who and, to think. and sort of neutrality is there's this there's this assumption that this is like that it's not just that I'm enforcing my authority with this view, but that it's like I'm taking I'm just neutrally pointing out that English and maths are more important than 
than you know exactly. geography and, and PE. Yeah, the idea that it's that's that's not an ideological position in itself is very problematic, isn't it? The idea that you're that to say maths is more important than music is immediately common sense and self-evident. Mm. based in my opinion around these shadow cultures that we're not consciously aware of because if you actually think about that logically um it doesn't really stack up does it the idea that certain types of knowledge in one's mind can be better than another better mm. on what specific measure because it's not measurable and henceforth the hierarchy idea doesn't seem to make sense does it um, but it's so embedded in our schooling realities that challenges challenging it can seem almost treacherous at times right i guess the thing that's really beautiful is a lot of people are challenging it aren't they and there's a lot more work going on now than there ever has been certainly in my lifetime with people who are very openly indicating that we don't perceive that learning operates in hierarchies because as soon as you put something in a hierarchy and you assume that it's more valuable or better than something else and you mash that up with a sort of neoliberal sense of how you evaluate that, which is usually around metrics. Mm. What you're then going to do every single time is you're going to exclude some people and you're going to exclude the same people. And they're always going to be people who have less capacity to learn at home, who have less resources, whose parents are less well academically educated, whose parents don't necessarily subscribe to the education that's being presented to them. And, in my personal opinion, some of the stuff that's going on in lots of organisations who are focused on trying to close the disadvantage gap, even though it's widened over the last 10 years, are operating on an entirely false um, position because it's not possible to have any sort of educational inequality when you have a tower of right knowledge because you're right. always going to have certain people who are excluded from that tower. You never yeah. get everyone reach the top. And also we live in a education and the education world in england where it's based entirely around scarcity anyway so it's not possible for more than two-thirds of young people to pass an exam for example so yeah right how can we close the disadvantage gap when the algorithm that exists to assess exams doesn't even allow that it's like a knee-jerk reaction this idea that schooling and the curriculum is okay it's what gert biester calls complexity reduction the idea that you ignore all of these factors that are making closing the disadvantage gap impossible and just continue to do the same thing over and over again. And I think sometimes academics are guilty of that, aren't they? They, they don't look at the education system itself and go, let's try and establish whether this is actually effective and works for young people. But they'll mm. do things like, I'm going to invent or work with a group of young people as subjects and see if I can get them to move up to two sub-levels of progress using this particular intervention. Well, that, that doesn't really change anything important, does it? It might get those two young people to get a slightly higher grade and it might improve the progress eight mark of the school, but that isn't going to close a disadvantage gap in terms of life or one's conception of themselves or a young person's, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. self-esteem or self-efficacy. So, yeah. yeah, it's just like twiddling, often twiddling around the edges of much larger problems. And I guess I'm just trying to figure out what yeah, are the right. problems really. And in a zero-sum game, as you say, where there are only so many A and B and C grades to go around, the harder you try to to do right by the kids in your care, it's like you're some of the kids somewhere else in the system who are probably going to be pushed down a grade as a consequence of that. I know that it doesn't quite work exactly like that. 
um don't write in but um it, it, to all intents and purposes it does there's, there's another hierarchy that um that came to mind as you were talking about that when you were talking about like we we're talking about neutrality and how this is not a neutral position this is an ideological position and in recent years people within research have tried to address that by sort of by talking about identity right and sort of writing your your identity as a researcher into the into the, the write-up of whatever you're researching so that you're not you know presenting yourself as a neutral pair of eyes that's not embodied that's just sort of peering into into social reality from the great void and somehow seeing everything in this objective true way right that's not that's not what we're doing we're situated compromised you know difficultly you know difficult people and you know we, we each have stories to tell and the more that we're upfront about that you know the the better i think the more the more honest and understanding of social reality we will glean from that and so people have started to do lots of things like writing about identity and doing things like ethnography and researching their own life and that also is really sneered upon isn't it there are people who seem to take delight in in sort of naming and shaming certain types of research that are published on social media and it's like oh look at this passing itself off as research it's just somebody like navy like navel gazing and going on about their childhood but you know this is a really important conversation to be had you know um i'm not saying that all kinds of research are equally high in quality of course but again there's this there's this conceived hierarchy with quantitative you know big scientific randomized controlled trials are the gold standard to go back to who was it who was using gold earlier plato uh that's the gold standard and then you know qualitative woolly sort of focus groups that's all just messy and you've got a sample size of four people so just disregard that you know like that's just that's not not high quality research um so we're applying this even to our ability to inquire into these very ideas that we're inquiring about. That's, that was a bit meta, wasn't it? No, no, I think that's an important point. A really important point is how research and what academia does has been shaped by these very same narratives. So the idea that, for example, if you can't measure something objectively using a standardized form of quantitative evaluation, it doesn't count as information. It doesn't count as knowledge. And that comes into the third theme, actually, about the myth of the heroic individual and neoliberalism and where that's emerged from. But obviously, within a neoliberal world, which we obviously now live in, very silently so, there's not many people who probably even know what that is, which is mm. fair enough. It seems to be that everything that's deemed worthwhile in society now is only deemed so in my view, anyway, I'd be interested to see what you think, James, but it's only deemed so if you can measure it using data. Yeah. So the idea that, for example, the work at States of Mind that we do in terms of co-constructing an evaluation framework to um, look at someone's school, that would be deemed pointless based on this agenda because there's no metric you can't say that one student did better than another they're not placed in a hierarchy and the it's it's an assessment done using dialogue rather than metrics and i think academia has slipped into that really profoundly not everyone there's a lot of academics who are doing some much more interesting work but the idea that you can create a metric without creating really significant unintended consequences for the young people who are being measured using that metric is absurd and 
I think we are starting to move away from that, but quite slowly. So I think it's a really good point you made, James. Mm, yeah, right. And and you're right, you know, the way that academia, you know, the REF, right, the research evaluation or research excellence framework, it's called, isn't it? The way that the academics are graded um, by the by the bean counters. And, and my understanding roughly is that, because I'm not working directly in academia, maybe you can correct me on this, but the, the highest grade, if you like, is like if you write very deeply dense theoretical work, then that's like really like valued by by the, by people, and also empirical work, things that are you know that that lead to measurable outcomes, and and like you say, things like engaging directly with practice. I did an amazing project recently, the Metacognition Action Research Group, working with a, a researcher from Exeter University, um, and she had to take it as off as as unpaid leave, right? Because it was just like it wasn't even considered to be a, a, a valid part of her job as an academic to as a, of, of education to work with schools <laughs> to help them to do research to 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 bring kids on she literally had to take that as holiday leave because it's so unvalued that's at the bottom of the of that hierarchy uh it's insane this it is it is i mean this might be a good time just to say a little bit about what we've been doing at states of mind because you've segued perfectly into it there i think haven't you around yeah perfect okay academic research what is research generally what is knowledge and i think one of the things that's been really wonderful going back into academia as a slightly older person is learning about epistemology which is the nature of knowledge and the education system and a neoliberal world defines knowledge in a very specific way and we've just been touching on that haven't we the idea that if there isn't a specific objective metric it didn't happen the idea that without competition there is no sense of success there is no such thing as um, progress the idea that human beings exist in a free market and that there are no biases within that market everyone has the individual responsibility to create themselves as a product within that market you can see all of this in schools both between kids and between schools and these are the metrics aren't they that are used league tables between schools exam results between children so that's the knowledge it's a very positivist uh, way of conceptualizing knowledge isn't it that and you touched on this a second ago the idea that you might talk to someone and ask them what was their experience of that and then write that up and theme it can be viewed with disdain which is really concerning to me because if you look at the oecd data the world health organization data the good childhood reports state of the nation reports released by the government young people in england are experiencing a significantly higher level of distress to at least some extent caused by schooling than almost everybody in Europe. They come, we come at the bottom of the table in terms of um, school anxiety, fear of failure, right. life satisfaction. And the really nuanced and granular data that comes out of that, it's not perfect, of course, because it is metric data and it is you know, using standardized um, questions, but it's quite worrying. And I guess at States of Mind, what we try to do is go and work with young people directly and try and establish, so what are the social determinants of your mental health? And we've pulled together a very large sample size of about, I think, a thousand questionnaires now, which we want to try and write up um, with the help of some other doctorate students, which is really highlighting aspects of schooling as being significantly problematic. And the main project we were doing to try and think about, well, how can we empower young people to action things in the world and to be participants in their own research rather than subjects who are treated like metrics on a league table rather than human beings with their own thoughts feelings and 
passions. And we did this project called Breaking the Silence, which I know, James, you've been really supportive of, as of, I'm sure many people who are listening. So we want to do a big thanks to people who've shared our documentary, et cetera, and supported the project. So what we wanted to do is think about, well, the epistemology, the way knowledge is constructed in the school system is based on a tower, isn't it? And only certain people reach the top of that tower. And the metrics I've just described are really problematic. They're really damaging. They're extremely harmful to thousands and thousands of children. And they're the ones I'm seeing week in, week out in the prison system and in the people referral unit. They can't cope. They either opt out because they're not coping or they kick off and are pushed out. And then they're blamed for that because they're not good products. They're what um, one academic called human unsaleable goods, which I think is a lovely, powerful and really rich sentence that explains these children, some of them call the prue the bin, because they've been binned by society. And I'm hearing this all the time. So we want to think about, well, instead of constructing young people as objects who can't create knowledge, who have no knowledge, whose sole role is to listen, maintain information, and using the words of the young people, memorize and write, what can we do? So we started thinking about co-constructing an education evaluation framework and we spent the last four years with different cohorts of young people sitting in a room with them and the way we start this James really is and we want to write this up BNI this approach because I think it's um a lot of people have asked about it and how might they do it but you, we just start really by going how are you how is school and you start completely open like that and the fascinating thing about it is to begin with the young people they still call me sir even though I try and break that barrier down and go, I'm not, I'm not a teacher. You know, I'm not above you in a hierarchy. You don't have to defer to me. If you want to go for a wee, you go for a wee whenever you like, things like that. Try and create a different atmosphere. And we run these projects in schools. So this isn't something that is impossible to do in a school environment because we're doing it in various schools at the moment. And then we start asking them, well, we had an idea. What do you think of this idea to try and create an evaluation framework for your school? And of course, they love that. Immediately, they connect with that. And then they design the research questions, they generate their own data, they, they ran interviews with various academics, they did focus groups with young people and teachers, they read a lot of papers, and each session is different, and a research doctorate student, doctorate student called Jasper worked with me on it, and we would co-construct the session content each week based on what the young people were saying, what they were, where they wanted to go with it next week. And it was a really beautiful thing, to be honest, because we were co-constructing knowledge together using a really rigorous research approaches. So, you know, we taught them how to create questionnaires, how to analyze the data and how to run focus groups, etc. And over those few years, we co-created the evaluation framework called the Review for Progress and Development. Now, if you go back to what we were just talking about, James. Based on the metrics of the current education system, they've not learned anything because there's no exam, there's no metrics. The outcome is minute to minute, second to second of assessment of each other and ourselves in the moment, in the sessions. So it's a dialogic form of assessment whereby we're working together to co-construct knowledge and we assess how we're doing through conversations, through oracy, which is I know something you'd be keen on. And that's how we know we've succeeded. And at the end of the project, we'll discuss how it went. And many of the students have presented at conferences in England, internationally, 
some of them have been to other schools to present their findings, which are really rigorous, by the way, and I'll put them to you and you can share them. So I think hopefully what we're demonstrating here is that the knowledge tower, the tower of right knowledge and the metrics used in the English education system, which are fine for some young people and are actively harmful to others, can be subverted and can look completely different if you just reformulate what you perceive knowledge to be and if you perceive that young people have knowledge and that's a constellation and that's what we're working on at the moment in terms of a metaphor because that's a really great metaphor so when we do the breaking the silence project we'll have between 12 and 16 young people in a room and all of them are lighting up at different times, if that makes sense. Some of them really like presenting to their head teachers what they've done and how they're gonna run this evaluation framework in the school. Some of them are very much backdoor. They're out the door as soon as you mention that and they wanna do more um, academic tasks. Some of them wanted to write the review for progress and development, write the document. Some of them wanted to do the artwork. You know, there are many different ways people contributed to those conversations and if you use things like Mentimeter where people can write anonymously and record anonymously what you then also get is the idea that you can use software to really democratically assess the young people's perceptions in that session without putting them on the spot without forcing them to speak in front of others so there were some young people who barely said a word for an entire year in these sessions but I know that they were communicating their ideas very uh, eloquently and robustly because we were using software. So what I've tried to explain there, James, is the idea that the tower of right knowledge isn't absolute. It doesn't have to be like that. And you can work with young people in a way that completely and utterly shifts the way that you conceptualize knowledge and right knowledge. And the way you consider an outcome and the way you consider assessment is negotiated with the people you're working with. And if you think about it, that's often the case in life, isn't it? In your friendship groups, um, often even in your when you have a job, you have to negotiate with people and come to conclusions and work through things in a way that doesn't have clear metrics and doesn't have clear outcomes. So it works on numerous levels. And we've got a paper coming out, Jasper's just writing it now, that captures the young people's views and some of their quotes around the impact it's had on them doing that has been really awesome, actually. We've been very, really chuffed with it. And my favorite, I'll just share this with you. One, my favorite moment of the whole project was a young person came over to us at the documentary launch. This young person is, uh, has issues with speech. And he said that because of the way the project was positioned, because of the way the project didn't put pressure on him and allowed him to speak in his own words, in his own way, at his own pace, he said his, he now feels confident speaking to people when he'd never done it before. And he then came with us and did a presentation at another school called Eton. And it was a real game changer for him, you know, and another young person, last one, sorry, I get really excited about this project. <laughs> but the last one, which I thought was amazing, was another young person who was quite quiet to begin with and the teachers thought would be someone who'd struggle with the project. She told us that what she does now, when the school make a decision and it hasn't involved the young people, she goes and knocks on the head teacher's door and says, hello, Mrs. X. Are you aware that you've just made that decision as a school without consulting the student population? So without being paternalistic about it and without forcing it, it can support young people to grow in really interesting ways. And it also gives them a sense of authority and power in the world that they might not have. 
and they've reported this directly, they, they might not have if they're sitting in a classroom doing A-levels. And I'm not saying that everything about A-levels is bad, absolutely not. Some young people like A-levels and they enjoy it. What I'm saying is the type of knowledge that is accepted and normalised in the school system generally doesn't have to look like that. And what would happen if young people were learning and thinking like this more than an hour and a half a week, for example? So it opens a lot of mm. questions for us. Yeah, man, it's a beautiful project. Congratulations on 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 pulling this together and and making this work. Um, it's a really remarkable thing. And you're you're right, of course. Like once you once you name these shadow cultures, as you put it, once you like you diminish it, you can name it, you can label it, and then you can go. Doesn't have to be that way. We can reformulate this. We can reconfigure the the power structures. We can reconfigure the language that we're using. We can do this in a different way. And you know, when you, my goodness, to hear kids referring to their their place, the Peru is the bin. You know, like that's not the first time that I've heard kids using that language um, to describe how they were made to feel like pieces of trash because of feeling expendable, feeling like they they weren't valued. Um, my goodness, man, if you're looking for <laughs> for some a source of moral strength or courage or drive or purpose to, to reconfigure this system urgently, there it is. Like that's horrific. Of course, when you create a hierarchy, there are people at the bottom of that hierarchy who are repeatedly systematically being made to feel like shit about themselves. And that's true of future generations, you know, the, the kids who are born today to all the joy and, you know, um, what have you, their parents, one in three of those will fail their GCSEs. Like if we don't change the system, that's that's coming down the track for, for one in three of them. Terrific. And, 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 and the thing that you were talking about there, this, you know, using the Mentimeter to learn to learn in this collaborative way, it's a beautiful example of interthinking. Again, Neil Mercer um, shows his raises his head in this in this conversation. His book on interthinking is brilliant, and I was thinking about it earlier when you were talking about music and the way that your band was creating music. Because in his book, Interthinking, he talks about educational context, but also Neil's also a brilliant folk musician, and he talks about and he also studied how bands use music in really interesting ways. And now, like I don't know if you still do music, but I'm in a band still, and I'm now really sort of like, I've got my go there with my social science hat on, and I'm like, ooh, look at how people are using language and how people are not saying things and how the, how people are using spaces to communicate ideas. And, yeah. and the way that you use words to describe music is always hopelessly inadequate. So, any, so anyway, that's that's a really interesting connection, and it links us into the third of your of your big three, the myth of the heroic individual. The myth of the heroic individual. So away you go. Right. So this this is one of the, I think, possibly the most complicated hypothesis because it's rooted in a way that is more difficult to describe. So I think I started talking a little bit about what we have now at the moment and the society that we are surrounded by and the institutions that we exist within being 
arguably, and I don't know if everyone would agree with me on this, shaped by what you might call a neoliberal philosophies. And I've sort of explained those already, haven't I? So the idea of competition, the idea of metrics, the idea of responsabilization. In other words, you are an individual responsible for your own behavior in this system. And you are that, you are it. So anything that's happening to you, you are able to subvert that. If you don't subvert that, it's your fault. And that's what I'm seeing very commonly in the youth justice system in particular is young people who are essentially scapegoats and families who are scapegoats for a system that exists as a hierarchical um, edifice based on scarcity rather than abundance is the way I'd frame that. And young people are pretty much constructed as individuals, aren't they? There's, there's no sense in schools of young people existing within groups or communities that's not entirely the case and there's, a, there's some really great examples that maybe i'll share at the end of this of schools doing things really differently and there's a school hub movement that's recently got some funding which i'm working around where schools are positioning themselves directly as communities and not as what some might describe as exam factories so there are people pushing against this as well so hopefully i'm demonstrating at every hypothesis here at each of the three hypotheses there's lots going on to shift things in the right direction based on what we know about psychology. And I'm gonna mention a few psychological theories first because I think it's absolutely crucial that we are aware that we are not individuals. There's no such thing as an individual and that might sound like an absurd statement, but I'll explain what I mean by that. Like the anti-Thatcher. Indeed, so Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, didn't she? And that is an absolutely glaringly hard push away from the idea that we are ever reliant on others, that we ever need others, that other people even need to exist for us to self-actualize. Now, let's go back millions of years now. When human beings were australopithecines, there's a lot of evidence from the archeology span and the shape of their bodies, for example, that the reason human beings started to begin to develop to become homo sapiens and went through a few other different forms, homo erectus, um, Homo neanderthalis and a few others is because infants were beginning to be able to attach to the body of the mother for longer and one of the theories around that which I really like is the idea of what that did and this is April Knoll who wrote an amazing book called Growing Up in the Ice Age she talks about this idea that by doing that and by a, an infant being having spending more time face to face with the mother interacting visually looking at each other, making noises. What that may well have done is expanded that, that being's capacity to think, that the person's capacity to socialize. So these are some of our really, really early ancestors. And if you look at the archeological record, there's a lot of evidence going back hundreds of thousands of years, tens of thousands of years too, of human beings living in social groups, of human beings living in small communities. And Neanderthals even used to bury their own dead, which is quite astonishing. So there was a species of hominid, of, um, hominid before us who buried their own dead. So that suggests very complex social societies, doesn't it? You know, if you're burying your own dead, you, you must have an idea of an afterlife. You must have a conceptualization of a person who exists in a nested hole. Right. And this is where the cosmic egg and some of these other ideas may have emerged from, this idea that we're a community together with different types of people in it. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because there are certain things that are encoded into human beings 
that have been here for tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of years. And one of those things is this need for belongingness. And that's the word that psychologists have been using to use this, uh, talk about this over the last few decades. And what belongingness means is the human need, and it's a fundamental motivation, arguably the most fundamental motivation, is to have two-way reciprocal social interactions with a stable, consistent group of human beings over an extended period of time. Now, that sounds really obvious, doesn't it? But our school system has developed for some young people to completely subvert that. So I'm starting in the modern era now, and then I'm going to go back again. So we know that in the school system, because there's it doesn't work very well, and because it's trying to prop up the social hierarchy, and there's a very specific tower of right knowledge, and the order of three, and other narratives that are present that don't work and that marginalise some kids, push some kids out, mean that they don't cope. What happens is English schools have a policy of very punitive repercussions for young people who don't fit into that very specific narrow set of hierarchies. And things like isolation, things like exclusion, what they do is they, they make things incredibly challenging for young people because they subvert some of the absolutely deeply encoded parts of our psychology. So imagine if you are living in a community tens of thousands of years ago, James, and you were ostracized from that community. You're not going to survive, are you? you know, you're not going to survive in our ancestors. So we've developed this incredibly powerful drive to be together in groups. And what right. school does to some young people is it subverts that. And even in the basic, normally developing, typically developing, to use a more commonly used phrase, young people, what we've got in schools now is a gradually reduced number of break times, gradually reduced length of lunch times. And there's this sense that anything where they're not learning using in you know this tower of right knowledge, learning this curriculum is dead time. But what that's doing is it's assuming that young people are individuals who don't need other people and they exist in competition with one another. Now, that literally subverts human evolution. And that can lead to significant distress. So if you add to that, that not only are you perceived as an individual dislocated from other individuals, and as you'll be aware, and I'm sure you've had some interactions like this yourself, collaboration and working in groups is so aggressively policed by some senior educators in our country that you you almost get, I'm going to use the word abused for mentioning it, just for saying that that's important. So what we've got is a situation where we're subverting human evolution by reducing the belongingness of children. And if a young person doesn't cope with school and ends up being isolated or ostracised, what we know about from the research on ostracism is that it's incredibly painful. So I think it'd be helpful for anyone listening and even for you, James, listening now to just think about a time when you were ostracized or pushed out of a social group for five minutes. What if someone doesn't text you back? What if you're trying to have a romantic relationship with someone and they stop responding? What if you feel that your friends have gone out without you and you weren't invited? Most people have had that happen, right? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's rough, man. That's really rough. And it's what we know from Professor Kipling Williams's work, who's a brilliant writer on ostracism, is that actually these social injuries are much more painful and much more long-lasting than the physical injury. Right. If you break your ankle, 
we have magical biology and our bodies will heal that ankle and none of our fundamental needs need to be thwarted. If you are in an education environment and you're pushed out and you're not experiencing belongingness and you're experiencing a high level of ostracism, it's literally not possible for that human being to experience mental well-being because of thousands and thousands of years of evolution. So constructing young people as individuals who are devoid of the need to interact with others and don't need other people is completely literate when you think about evolution and psychology. Mm. And to add to that, there's a really important, important point to make about social identity theory as well. And the idea that particularly developing teens, and you've recently spoke to Miss um, Blakemore about that, haven't you, Dr. Blakemore, about that, about the absolutely incredible drive teenagers have to connect with one another. So if you add that to the mix as well, and you recognise and you look at the education system, and some of these kids being in a bottom set, what does that do to your sense of belongingness? Being isolated, what does that do to your sense of belongingness? Is that making you feel ostracised? Mm. What's your identity therefore? Because every human being has to develop a sense of identity, right? So my identity is varied. Many are. So, you know, I have one part of my, ident my identity is, you know, as a musician, for example, these days. And one part of my identity is do what, do what I'm doing now with you, which is, you know, I'm, I'm hopefully, an, you know, an academic and a campaigner around certain issues around schooling. So those are very strong social identities. Again, that's encoded over thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution. And if you're in a position whereby that social identity is pushed in a certain direction, that's going to shape your behaviour, isn't it? So there's a reason why any teacher will tell you this, and any parent will tell you this. Kids who are like each other find each other. So if a kid's been subject to various isolations or marginalisations and exclusions, they're going to find other young people who feel the same thing because that's completely normal human behaviour. Much like when I go travelling, if I go to, I don't know, Burma, I'm going to find a bar full of drunk white English people, whether <laughs> I like you or not. I just end up there and I don't even know how I got there <laughs> because you're drawn into it because of your social identity. You know, and it's impossible to subvert that. So I wanted to start with those three theories because the young people I work with, particularly in the youth justice sector and in the pre sector, they've been told repeatedly and very often physically removed from education spaces that they're no good at it, they can't do it, they can't access it. Um, they're at the bottom of the hierarchy, as you put it a minute ago. So to exist, survive, you have to find a different social identity. Because if you don't have a social identity as someone who can cope with the learning and someone who is a learner, to use right. a phrase, use yeah, yeah. you're going to look elsewhere for it. So, and, you know, when that happens, it's very common then that the system, whether it be social care or you know the education system sometimes even families you'll put this the onus of that on the child right you're within child it'll become the child's problem but hopefully what i'm trying to say there is you don't become a person in a vacuum like every single thing about who you are as an individual is influenced by an incredibly complex and infinitely um, convoluted set of interactions with mind body and brain and that develops very slowly over time doesn't it so the idea that you can ever be an individual who self-actualizes alone is is ludicrous but that's the paradox so the education system is positioning people or the school system positions people as individuals and it ignores 
the thousands and thousands of years of evolution that actually mean that there's no such thing as an individual. In fact, we all exist in a network of complicated social relationships. So that's, I perceive anyway, where we are now. And I'm going to go a bit quicker through this one because I think otherwise we'll run out of time. But I think this goes back a very, very long way as well. And if you look at the earliest oral traditions, for example, the story of Odysseus, I don't know whether you've heard of Horkheimer and Adorno, some German philosophers, really fascinating writers. No. They talk about Homer as being the founding stories of Western civilization. And I think that makes sense because it shaped all of the ancient Greek thinking, which shaped all of the Roman thinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Odysseus was a, an individual who had adventures and if you're a psychoanalyst, and I tend to agree with him on this, the whole purpose of Homeric stories is about people going from being a child uh, through that sort of initiation of moving into adulthood and then emerging either crushed or as an, as an individual. That makes sense. So Homer is one of those stories of um, becoming an individual in a complicated world. And he, what he did was he used people as tools he constructed people around him as objects and i think one of the reasons i wanted to mention that james is because one of the things that we see often powerful people doing is using their individual will and their sense that they are an individual to create policies and institutions based on their own image as a way of them self-actualizing i'll give you an example of that so when you get a new education minister come in for example what they'll tend to do is they'll implement a load of policies with the idea for them is to become a hero, is to become an individual hero, an idea that's been embedded over thousands of years. If you look back through all the statues of kings, through all the edicts released by Henry VIII, if you go back to some of the, um, the post-Norman ways of um, presenting oneself as a godly knight, if you look at medieval chivalry and the idea that purpose of learning is to become this perfect individual who can lord her over others with honor our current conceptualization of the individual i think comes from that very long history of powerful white men ordinarily becoming a heroic individual and then using the authority that's given to them self-appointed they will then create policies and strategies and approaches to everything that are in line with what their own core beliefs are mm. and Personally, I think within the sort of laissez-faire capitalism of the 19th century, the idea that becoming a heroic individual, earning money off your own back, um, using individual thrift to get on in the world, all of these different examples I've given there, they're underpinned by the same thing, really, which is the idea that everyone wants to become a hero. Everyone wants to become a heroic individual. And that's, I think, seeped into our school system as well. And it's also shaped the ideas around neoliberalism and the free market obsession that we have in Anglo-American countries. But if you think about, and I've already described, I think the impact on young people of that, it pretty much removes the idea that there's any sense that you can co-produce knowledge, that there's any sense that you need others to become a person. I think that's really important. Mm. And there's no sense in any way that education should be something where you learn about how to be with others unless that means following prescriptive rules 
set by a senior leadership team of a school, for example. And that's one of the things that Stakes of Mind we're working really hard on. And we're trying to, B's come up with um, a really great program called Selfology and another one called the Wellbeing Ambassadors. And the purpose of that is to try and think about how you co-produce different ways of conceptualizing who you are within the education system, if that makes sense. And you learn about human psychology, you learn about social psychology, in particular things like belongingness, social identity, you learn about ostracism, you learn about the intrapsychics and that what's what's going on inside you and how that relates to the interpsychic, your relationship to others. And what we've got in the education system at the moment is Again, if you think about the elite filter I talked about earlier, James, and the sacred past trying to be restored, we've got a system that lionizes and champions the idea of individuals, spearheaded and made worse by the Thatcher era in the 1980s national curriculum, and a dislocation of education from the social. And I could go on for hours, obviously, about all the different historical examples I gave from medieval chivalry up down to Odysseus. But I think the important point for the, for the podcast, because people will probably be uh, wanting to uh, me to get to the point now, <laughs> is, is that um, learning the way things currently stand thwarts, in my opinion, some of the fundamental needs that have been embedded in us via human evolution over tens of thousands, possibly millions of years if you go back far enough. Yeah, man. Wow. Thank you. So, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in there as there were with the other two. And um, yeah, the first thing <laughs> on a trivial point, sorry to pick up on a trivial point first, on, but you, you met, you helped me, you used the word edifice there and you helped me realize that that was the word that I was <laughs> reaching for when I used the word carapace earlier, which I believe means tortoise shell. <laughs> oh, right. Well, it's oh, I mean. hard and lofty, so that to, would have worked anyway. We need to smash the tortoise shell of neoliberalism. Yeah, yes, please. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so maybe it would work anyway. Um, yeah, all right. So that was much more complex. I can see what you mean. That, that you, like the, the, the strap line for that, the myth of the heroic individual, um, I mean, I've sort of come across that idea a bit before, uh, you know, the, the classic example being Newton, for example, who spent um, many of the, late, the later years of his life in a fruitless, very individualistic quest to turn base metals into gold. Um, but when he was a bit more interconnected, when he was standing on the shoulders of giants, as he, as he put it, um, and working with other people, he bloody invented the laws of motion or figured them out, whichever one you did. Um, and so, um, and so, and I've come across that, that there's this myth of the heroic individual that, 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 that it's, yeah, that, that all of the great achievements of humankind have been, have been pulled off by some lone genius um, working against the odds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that often isn't the case, right? Like there's, there's and again, Neil Mercer, uh, our mascot for this conversation, yeah, yeah. has has, has uh, written a lot about this as well, that if you really look at what was going on with those people, they're often surrounded by a really tight-knit network of, of people who are challenging them to be better at themselves, often multidisciplinary people. So you often find that like poets were hanging out with artists, were hanging out with philosophers and scientists, and that right. people were sort of, you know, not just hanging out in like-minded little cliques, but were testing their ideas. Um, but but the the pitch that you're painting is is much more nuanced, and I think it seems much more, um, you know, reflective of your understanding and the work that you're doing as an educational psychologist around you know the impact 
of of isolationism and ostracism and the fact that we use these words exclusion and and now they use this word seclusion this is like makes it sound all lovely but it's basically just an exclusion room what they call it seclusion or an inclusion room um and and you can see that that absolutely the system is set up in such a way as to essentially set kids against one another in a dog eat dog sort of way right that there's there's this a better than system rather than better with right so in an exam the whole point of an exam is to do better than all the other kids so that you come out on top of the, of another hierarchy right the great like graded on the curve um and and that's an interesting thing to think about in a moment i'm going to ask you to do like a quick fire <laughs> like fix of all of these very deep rooted thousands of year old problems <laughs> uh, so no pressure um in fact, let's do that now. Let's do that now. Unless, unless, have you got anything further to say on the on the myth of the heroic individual? Well, I think I just wanted to pick up the fact that that approach comes out of the Enlightenment and the specific approach we have now. That is, I think what happened was Nietzsche writes a lot about this, about the idea that science replaced religion, and this idea that everything that needs to be done can be done via science, and that's become a religion in itself. And schooling has been tied in with this very individualized science of the person, if that makes sense. So the person being an atomized, separate thing. And people like John Stuart Mill almost went bonkers by being forced to become this hyper-rational individual who could reason perfectly and had perfect logic. And what we do know through psychology is that, as you pointed out, people learn very often in collaboration with others and even if they don't james they've become that individual because of the existence and the interaction with others over many decades of their lives generally speaking i think that's a really crucial point to remember and one of the thing on it i think that's coming in now which is a really wonderful thing is ideas from the americas for example and first nation peoples who spent thousands and thousands of years and into much more recent time thinking about the planet and the world around them with things like respect and reciprocity and only taking what you need. I think the individualized sort of neoliberal society that we live in, it doesn't have really any consideration either of the social impacts, the social implications on young people of what of doing that, but it also doesn't say anything, does it, about the planet or the climate. There's a really beautiful book called Braid and Sweetgrass that came out recently, which talks a lot about how society could move into a space whereby all decisions are made, not based solely on individual merit or worth or self-actualization, to use a word that's been probably overused and misused many times, to a position where education and learning should also foster ideas of respect, reciprocity and only taking what you need and not just taking what's good for you. And those ideas are completely absent from schooling at the moment. And we, we've got to be careful because we're not going to have a planet left unless we start reconceptualizing how we relate to each other and the planet. And in my personal opinion, I think animals and plants and even inanimate objects also need belongingness. They also need to be reciprocally, reciprocally connected to us and each other and the world around them. So these ideas that have come out of um, modern psychology and also extrapolating from human evolution 
are absolutely crucial way beyond the school gates. You know, so if, if we don't start thinking about respect, reciprocity and only taking what you need, if we don't start conceptualizing people as, as humans who need belongingness, need to develop a positive social identity and are self-determined, we're going to really struggle as a society. And there are, again, there are people trying to reframe it in those ways, in different education provisions and in different home education institutions or groups and elsewhere as well. So I just wanted to throw that in because it goes beyond the school, doesn't it? It goes beyond the individual's need for belongingness. I think mm. thinking about what's going on around us in the world in, in those terms as well. Otherwise, we're not going to have a planet by the time, you know, our children's generation are in their 90s. Totally, man. Like, I agree. I love that idea of, of, of <laughs> it sounds like it's this sort of thing that people sneer at, right? The idea that inanimate objects have belongingness as well and, and are sacred in some sense, that everything in existence is sacred. And that, but, but unless we think about that, then we're going to have things like planned obsolescence, right? We're going to like design things for the dump, essentially, and just run out of resources and then go, oh, man. You know, to basically do like Easter Island, but on a planetary scale, where they cut down all the trees to—is yeah. that what happened there? They cut down all the trees yeah. to to transport all the um, the big stone effigies around, and then they were like, "Oh shit, we're going to yeah. die now." And then they did, and that's basically like the metaphor that we're living through, isn't it, on a planetary level? Um, and so, and so, let's let's move into this final part of this conversation. And in a way, this this whole like usually I ask these three questions at the end of the conversation, like what's, what are the positives uh, you've talked already about some really positive stuff that's happening that you're doing in the States of Mind Project and, and elsewhere. What are the problems you've identified? Three, like what would it be? Not the mother of all problems. Three, I don't know, the the, the holy trinity of of absolute, uh, the mother of all head scratches. They're, these are deep-rooted things. Um, and so just to recap them, and I, as, as you've been chatting i've thought of they all they all interlink in a massive way obviously the order of three being essentially about imposing a hierarchy on human beings the tower of right knowledge about essentially imposing a hierarchy on the way that we organize our understanding of the world and the myth of the heroic individual is essentially about lionizing the the small number of individuals who are at the top of that pyramid and saying like that they got there because they are better than everyone else and they tried harder and that they deserve it somehow. And therefore the, the hidden message there is that you're all undeserving, <laughs> unlucky, you're at the bottom of the pyramid. Again, you know, very hierarchical idea. And so in a sense, maybe it's all just like one problem, but let's let's take them individually. So in terms of the higher like the order of three, the hierarchy of people, we talked a little bit about this earlier. But it seems like at the, at the root of it, there's a belief, isn't it? So, so if that isn't true, I talked earlier about how it's sort of simultaneously a myth, but also it's simultaneously kind of true in the sense that people have been treated according to this hierarchy for, for millennia. And so what's the belief? If you, if you had to create a new system based on a new belief, what would that be? Well, I think it's observing when it's gone well in our society, what's made it go well. So for example, when the workers' movement started in the early, sorry, the late 18th century, the first emerged an idea of groups that can include everyone. That was the first time that had happened. So if you read E.P. Thompson's amazing book, I think it's called The Making of the Working Class, he talks in a lot of detail about this, about how suddenly 
in the Georgian era when colonialism was kicking off and you know the world was in a very dark place for the working poor and the industrial sectors came along in the different country in the different cities Birmingham and Liverpool etc the workers movement started very slowly but it was this idea that everyone can be involved for the first time and I think since that point we've had a gradual and there's been peaks and troughs and I think we're in a bit of a trough now but there's been peaks and troughs whereby people have been exerting democratic rights and I think inalienable human rights to have a fundamental say in what happens to them that's been happening hasn't it over the preceding centuries so I think for the for the order of three for me it's about making first of all that thing conscious because I don't think it's conscious often Hmm. and the unbelievably large number of things being broken into threes that still exists in our society in terms of social hierarchies whether it be class or algorithms on exams, setting or streaming, there are many others. Recognising that that is a myth, that that isn't an evidence-based reality is a big one. But I also think it's really important for people to take the time to look at where that is being subverted, to where the narrative is being um, shifted. And I think that's when it's really useful, and I think you're doing great work on this, James, to look at people who are doing things differently, who are in learning communities or democratic school environments or home educators working together or employers, for example. There are many employers now who are acting in different ways, aren't they? Using things like self-determination theory to support people to be more autonomous, to exert their agency. So I think first is making it conscious that it is a myth that has been created to serve a purpose unconsciously, and that was to maintain the social hierarchy. The second thing in a sentence is just really opening your eyes, being okay to be uncomfortable, accepting that you're going to feel vulnerable and uncertain doing it, but trying to find where are people subverting that thing. And there are lots of people out there doing it. And there are many great examples of it happening. And I mean, I've obviously mentioned states of mind. That's obviously something we hold very close to us. And it's, I guess, those two things. Mm, Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks. Okay, uh, the next one is the tower of right knowledge. What might be a way that we could think differently about that? What what sort of, when we talked about the EBAC quite a bit when you were talking about that, that seems like it's something that you would like to see the back of, um, the EBAC of, but um, yeah. um, what's EBAC to the future, EBAC to the stone age or something. Um, what would you like to see happening on that front? Well, again, recognising that the number seven that keeps repeating itself, you know, then the three core subjects that keep repeating themselves, mm. they're unconscious shadow cultures, they're knee-jerk responses, they're not something that is self-evident, it's not common sense. I mean, the idea that you split human knowledge into those subjects and that there are core subjects at all, very similar to the order of three, James, is an invention of the human mind to make us feel certain, to make us feel less vulnerable, to make us feel like we have a handle of that knowledge. And we're terrified of teenagers running riot, aren't we? And not knowing the right things. And there's a lot of adult projection there and into the children that we're we're bringing up here, that if you don't give them a certain set of information or facts, and if you read Edie Hirsch's work or Daisy Christology's work, there's a real obsession, isn't there? by adults holding facts, knowing what right knowledge is. And if you don't impart that into the people that you're working with, 
you are failing them and you are harming them. Now, the problem with that, of course, if you read E.D. Hirsch's work, he wants to come up with an American super tribe, his word, not mine, based on shared knowledges, which, of course, completely ignores the fact that many people may not agree with his version of shared knowledges. Many people not want, might not want to join his super tribe. And more perniciously for me, he draws on writers like Noah Webster and Horace Mann, who force common schooling onto everyone in America, including First Nation peoples. And that involved an enormous amount of horrendous trauma for the First Nation peoples and obviously for black Africans coming over. So that's, I think we need to unlearn this idea that, that you can have a right knowledge that's decided by an elite set of people. And it always strikes me, James, that, not, that more teachers don't kick off about this because they're teaching a curriculum that's been invented almost always by white men in Whitehall, forcibly then shoved onto them without their consent. So to cut a long story short with that one, I think it's recognizing that in any knowledge and in any ways of constructing knowledge, the people who are involved in that knowledge, they need to consent. They need to have a say in constructing that knowledge and they need to have a say in how that knowledge is delivered and using what form and what approaches. And again, we're seeing that happen, aren't we, in different spaces? And I've already mentioned some of those spaces. So again, it's, a, it's sort of unlearning this idea of a hierarchy of knowledge and recognizing that actually, if we want to live in a democratic society, we need to consent to the way knowledge is formulated. And the last thing I think that's really powerful and is really quite challenging to a lot of adults, I think, is the idea that, and we've proved this at States of Mind, and people can watch this documentary and read some of the stuff that the young people have come up with if they like, that if you sit down with young people and you don't treat them like babies and you think together with them, they can co-construct knowledge and that's unbelievably empowering for those young people and far from harming them, it supports them to be a much more active member of society. So there's a, quite a lot in there, isn't there? And it's, um, it's a very complex one, that, but I think there's lots we can do. Yeah, right. I, I agree. Thank you. That's an excellent answer. And the final one, the um the how the I beg your pardon, what's the what's this the phrase, the myth of the heroic individual and the ostracization and the isolationism um and the better than stuff. What can we do on that front? I think that's in a way simpler and in a way more complicated. The simple bit is <laughs> we actually know this. We know that being ostracized is awful. We know that if we don't feel like we belong, we can't cope emotionally with our lives. We know that relationships are the most core part of our existence. And we know, I think implicitly, that we only become individuals through interaction with other people. So that's in a way quite simple, isn't it? And anybody whose autobiography you read, they go on for hours, don't they, about the people who've helped me, the people who've supported me. And, you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty obvious one. But that's completely forgotten when kids walk through the school doors. And I think we need to be really careful of trying to subvert evolution by positioning young people as individuals who are in competition with one another and start remembering that human beings exist in communities and are implicitly connected to one another all the time. And the other one is, and I think this is in a way more important, is we think we probably need to move away from false prophets and people who think they have certainty 
individuals who are telling us that they know exactly how the world works and positioning them as heroes to subdue our own sense of uncertainty and vulnerability. And I think some of our institutions play that role. I think people are often happier to defer to the Department for Education or the curriculum because trying to co-construct one with other people feels very scary, very complicated, but we can't really have a de democratic society where people are genuinely able to feel that they have an equal say, unless we take the risk that being told by what to think by an elite who are self-appointed heroes is not the best thing to do. So I think there's, there's a few things we can do with that as well. And again, that's happening in different spaces and at different times. So your, your mention of false prophets there made me think of Jordan Peterson, right? I don't know, I don't know how familiar you are with, with his Relatively. work. Um, and and he's, an, he's an interesting character. He says some really, really interesting things and some really, really uh, difficult, problematic things. But his, the, 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 as we said earlier about like the, the, it seems like the idea that links all of these three dragons that you've been slaying today is this idea of hierarchy. And he's really into hierarchies, and he sort of says that that that, that there's a quote I just looked. So he says that the people who hold that that our culture is an oppressive patriarchy, they don't want to admit that the current hierarchy might be predicated on competence, right? And so he's sort of that 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 would I suppose that would be his rebuttal. He's like the hierarchy <laughs> hierarchy is predicated on competence, man. Like like what would you say to yeah. to Jordan Peterson and in his defense of of hierarchies on the on the basis that that they exist because some people are better at other stuff and if you don't like it get better at stuff well i guess answer number one to that would be that that's entirely disproved by the last 50 years of our school system where you've had people as you know people like me who if we just allowed society to be entirely driven by people who've self-appointed themselves as competent People like me, possibly even you, James, wouldn't even have gone to secondary school and we wouldn't be able to get into any position of authority or get qualifications or move anywhere outside of our historic pair and parental employment. So we know that by shifting slightly, we're not there yet, are we? By, by at least accepting that people are not born either competent or incompetent and giving people space to at least on some level exert their agency and autonomy and move into different spaces, that the hierarchy of competence has already been subverted. Mm. Almost the entire of human history, the only people who ruled were ruling because they perceived they had the divine right of kings. Based on right. Jordan Peterson's ideology, that's what we would still have. Yeah, right. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? To go back to the binary thing, like he's half right to some extent. Like there is true that people who are really good at things eventually tend to get recognized for being good at those things and they rise to positions of prominence because they're really good at acting or writing or whatever it is of course that's true and and, and in some sense it's entirely mundane like it's sort of not that interesting a thing to say but to suggest that the entire system is only based on that and that if you were born on the wrong side of the tracks and you end up in prison well that's your fault because you you know you didn't climb your way out of out of um the position that you were that you were gifted as a child um exactly so, i think that's true we didn't touch on meritocracy today but we could easily unravel that if we'd had time because again that's a pretty absurd construct that was first invented as a joke by michael young go on just briefly you can expand on that 
Well, you know, Michael Young wrote a book about meritocracy that was a uh, was yeah, yeah. and talking the, about the other Michael Young. So we've had a Michael Young on the podcast who I was thinking about earlier. The, he's the guy who wrote Knowledge and Control, which was very much a sort of a hierarchy based sort of critique of of the curriculum. Yeah. His, his, the initial book in seventy one, but you're talking here about the, the other Michael Young, aren't you? Who wrote the, the meritocracy book in the fifties? Right name, think. isn't it? It's the right name. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. There's two Michael yeah, Youngs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's two of them. I'm just check, just googling it. You know, very professional. You always Google your own <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I Michael Sandel is one of the most interesting thinkers about meritocracy now. Yes, and you know, he he wrote a book recently about the trap that is meritocracy and some of the unexamined assumptions that exist when you're thinking about it. And the fact that it's based around some very problematic ideas about what merit is measured by. That would be my main critique. Because once you start measuring merit based on the school system, Mm. immediately defining merit based on a form of intelligence that is incredibly narrow and has came out of eugenics, hasn't it? So if you're using an IQ (laughs) To not put too fine a point on it. Yeah, right, exactly. But if you're using an IQ test, which divides literally, and I'm an educational psychologist, so I had to train how to use IQ tests. You, young people are divided into low attaining, average, or superior. And many advocates, including Jordan Peterson of merit, would probably argue that that's the best way to judge someone's merit. Now, IQ measures some stuff, but it doesn't measure intelligence. I'll give you an example because it's really important. If I said to you, what does umbrella mean? And you'd not heard that word before. Does that mean you lack intelligence or knowledge of facts? It's not, that's not intelligence. Um, there's another vocabulary question that's actually called comprehension at the end of an IQ test that says things like, why do policemen wear uniforms? If you've never had that conversation with anyone and you never thought about it, you're not going to know how to answer that. That's not intelligence either. Mm. The working memory tests are based on memorizing and listening and, and repeating back numbers. If you've heard those numbers before, you'll remember them better. So that's a confounding variable. So IQ tests are based entirely around really problematic, unexamined assumptions about what is measured and how. Mm -hmm. So we could go on, James, but merit is usually based around metrics, isn't it? And yeah, I get it. Metric, you've poisoned it, and you're not measuring merit anymore. You're measuring other things, many, many other things, which might be neighbourhood socioeconomic background etc etc and that's another one and maybe that could that's even another shadow culture which which sort of um runs through almost everything all of this conversation is the idea that human beings can be reliably measured on a scale you know the very idea that that can happen um like as as a social scientist like you human being is really really multifactorial thing and they, you can't control all those other variables and so therefore it's essentially unmeasurable and we know that like the, the on, on the measures that we use on these very you know as, as they, they try to improve the reliability and validity of tests all the time but the the the, the test retest reliability on a, a gcses and a levels is appalling like very bad yeah. very very routinely be one or two grades out of, of what would be considered to be an accurate measure um, and that's the, the all these sort of unexamined assumptions that underpin everything that we do, underpin the whole way, the, you know, the forgotten third thing that we we're talking about. Um, my goodness, thank you for that. I feel thoroughly, um, thoroughly educated, and 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 also the, I'm sort of astonished, like the, by the depth of your knowledge, and that you, you know, 
for the benefit of listeners, Chris has not been referring to notes here. He's been on a he's been on a journey. This may have started with with snowboarding all those years ago, but you are now autodidactic AF <laughs> in my <laughs> view. Like you're on a mission, man. And it's and it's a beautiful oh, thing you. to see. Um and thank you for sharing so generously of your time and knowledge and um experience. Uh, with me and with uh, with our listeners, is there anything that you would like to to share as a parting comment, or by uh, by way of asking anything of our listeners if they want to find out more about anything that you've been talking about today? Just thank you, first of all. I really enjoyed it, James, and it's, it was really interesting to go through some of those ideas in depth for three hours. I think that's the first time I've spoke about it for that long, so that's been really brilliant for me as well because it's really helped me think about it and. Certainly some of the things you've thrown in there have challenged those ideas as well. And I'd love people to challenge the ideas and see what, and I'd love to hear what people think. So do uh, drop me a line. I'll put my email address um, or maybe my website actually in the chat, James. And um, also yeah. we'd love to hear what people think of the review for progress and development, which I talked about earlier, which is the education evaluation framework the young people came up with. So there's a documentary. We can share the review for progress and development itself alongside the questionnaires and focus groups the young people have co-constructed and we've also got a, a comment form for people to write on because it is participatory action research and we mm. really want to hear people's views on it because it isn't our project or anyone's project the idea is that ideas from anybody who has an interest will form part of the analysis otherwise otherwise we're recreating the problems that i've already described today so yeah people's views on that yeah, absolutely. I'll stick every all the links that I can in the show notes. We had uh, Joel and Hamza did a, a presentation at the Rethinking Ed conference about uh, this this sort of alternative um, inspection framework for schools, and it's so interesting. Like people are often really patronising about kids. When when we when I said to people like oh, we've got fifteen or seventeen of the sessions at this conference were being run by kids, and they'd be like. Oh, is it about like how they want more holidays and and like you know shorter days and more swimming pools and stuff? It's like actually no, they're like reinvented Ofsted, and one of them is about like the importance of vocational education, and one of them is about like mental health and well-being, and like they're absolutely across the detail, man. This is a, a conversation. Yesterday, I recorded a podcast with Jazz Amporfar, and she was talking about Gen Z. The, the, the sort of the post-millennial, uh, they go by a few different names, don't they? But these kids, man, oh my goodness, they are across the detail. They're amazing. We just yeah. need to get out of the way and just give them the keys to the corridors of power because they have got this covered. I feel very hopeful for the future when I, when, I, um, when I come across kids like the ones that you've been working with at States of Mind. Absolutely, yeah. So I'll, there's a number of young people who've spoke at conferences on on the project, so people can see the depth and the quality of their thinking as well. And we just love people to take a look at it. And we're really just trying to run what you could argue are sort of experiments, really, within the school system to demonstrate that all of the things that are not working very well don't have to be there, and it can look and feel really different. So I guess that's our mission, really. And I guess with my book, I've been trying to figure out why it looks like that in the first place. So I really appreciate you having me, James. Thanks so much. Mm, pleasure. And so have you got a rough, like, estimated time of arrival for this book? Did you say you're about two-thirds written or something? two-thirds of the way through, but it's one of those things because it's a long period of time I'm looking into. And <laughs> you know what it's like when you're reading for anything, right? You go through it and then you read something else and you go, oh, crap. Now I've got Yo, I've been there, man. 
I've been there. You know, so I'm in that phase where <laughs> a few more books arrive in and then I have to read them. And then, but it's got to the point where it's now, I mean, you've written the books, you know, but the, the bottleneck is starting to now tighten, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not, it's not like a big, gigantic, like a Roman, what are those wine things called? I can't I remember. Don't, what don't know. Anyway, so like, uh, it's not a big vat now, right? With a big, a big hole with nothing in it. Oh, I know. Yeah, sense. right. So yeah, there's a divergent phase and a convergent phase, and so it that's feels like you're, that's what I was trying yeah. to say. My brain's a bit dead now. You're I'm in the convergent in. phase, James. I think well, it's been thoroughly wrung out over the last three hours, so I'll, I'll let you go and uh, recover. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure to spend some time Thanks, with you, James. Thank you. Time is a measure of change.